0: Good morning. Opinions expressed on ACV Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this year's 2021 Conference and Convention of the Washington Council of the Blind. We're very, very happy to have you here. And our convention this year is entitled Near or Far, Together We Are. We're so very happy to have those of you who are attending on Zoom and also those of you attending on Media 9 via ACB Radio. Thank you to Belinda Collins, who is our Zoom host this morning, and also to Tyson Ernst, who is streaming us on ACB Media 9. Welcome, everyone. Can't believe we finally made it. So much preparation, and here we are. My name is Julie Brannan and I'm president of the Washington Council of the Blind, and we're going to begin with our opening ceremonies. First, we're gonna begin with the invocation and this will be presented to us by a minister Antoinette Jackson and she is by his from By His Word Christian Center. Antoinette, are you here? Does anyone know she's on the panel? Yes, yeah, she's here. Okay.
2: Good morning, everybody. Hi, Antoinette. So we're going to open in prayer this morning. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for this panel today. And I thank you for everything that is going on. I thank you for the hands that have prepared and everyone that is here to join in. I pray, God, today that it is successful and that everyone get out of it exactly what is needed and that it goes well today. May you bless everyone that is having a part and being a part. I pray that all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you very much. And next is my president's report. So again, welcome to this convention and the board of directors, all of our board, our officers and directors welcome you. And this is presented to you from our board of directors. So here we are, WCB, near or far together we are. First of all, we have continued with leadership support this last year. This year I continued to hold monthly meetings with all of our chapter presidents. And Lisa George, our treasurer, continued to hold monthly meetings with all of the chapter treasurers. And that's very exciting because that has never been done in the past. And that was newly initiated by Lisa and been very, very positive for all of the treasurers. And also I've continued to hold bi-monthly meetings with all of our committee chairs and vice chairs. Participation on All of these calls has been very strong insightful and allowed tremendous communication because as you can imagine communicating with 16 chapter presidents and um, 19 committee chairs and vice chairs on a regular basis is not easy and so these monthly and bi-monthly meetings along with lisa's treasurer meetings allow us for great communication we have three new presidents this year that are presiding over three of our chapters i'd like to acknowledge them and that's David Edick from Pierce County Association of the Blind, Mike Mayhurs from Peninsula Council of the Blind, and Tristan Breitenfeld, I hope I said her name right, and she's Yakima Valley Council of the Blind. So welcome new presidents, not an easy role to take on the presidency but they've done a beautiful job and thank you all three of you. Much appreciated. As you know, I'm very pro committee committee is near and dear to my heart committees are Um, part of that is because I get to organize them all during the month of January. (laughs) It has to be near and dear to my heart, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is because the work of WCB is done via our committees and we have some excellent ones right now we have 19 like I said earlier 19 committees and I checked all of the committee members how many members are on those committees. Some of the members are on multiple committees, by the way. Sometimes if you look, you see a name three or four times, which is exciting. But currently we have 87 members participating in our 19 committees. That includes chairs, vice chairs, and committee members. I asked my device, I said, what percentage of our 441 members is 87? And the answer I got was 19.77, which means about 20% of our membership are on committees. Some people might think that's pretty good. I would like to see it much, much more next year. I just wanna put a, a word in about committee involvement. It's really the best way to start getting your foot wet in WCB, learning about WCB, learning other opportunities. Anytime we have new members join, I encourage them to um, have chapter presidents, you know, forward their information, let me know about them and encourage them to get involved in a state committee. We have so many areas of interest and I'm not gonna go through them all because I could miss some, but we have um, advocacy committee, we have an awards committee, We have an aging and blindness committee. We have communications, constitution, crisis, convention, trying to go through them alphabetically, so don't forget. First timers, fundraising, finance, governmental affairs, history, membership, leadership, scholarship, WCB families, Newsline. So as you can tell, I haven't gotten through all 19, but we have a committee for practically any interest you wanna be involved in. You will be hearing Again, January is the committee organization month, and you'll be hearing from people saying, please let's get involved in committees. This year, along with the three new presidents, we had five new committee chairs. And again, that's not easy to step into chairmanship of a committee, but those new chairs are in our aging and blindness committee, Alco Canfield, for our convention program committee, Kathy Wilson, for our communications committee, Galen Ploy, our membership committee, Linda Wilder, and our newly formed outreach committee, Andy Arvidson. Actually, we have another one, a uh, new committee that was formed last year, which is fundraising, and that's Lisa George. Like I said, the two new committees have, were fundraising this year and outreach that were formed, so we did that last year. <clears throat> We've had some officer transitions this year. Early in January, our first vice president, Mika White, needed to step down, so we had to juggle. I felt like we were playing a chess game. <laughs> so at that point, what we did, Andy Arvidson, who was then second vice president, moved up to first vice president, and Sherry Richardson, who was then a director, moved into his second vice president position. That left the rest of Sherry's one-year director position open And so we asked Kim Moberg to step into that because Kim had been brought forth as a director from the nominating committee last year. In regard to fundraising, we did something new this year. It was Give, Give Big, and it was held on May 4th and 5th. WCB paid the registration fee and WCB shared the funds generated by the different chapters which chose to participate with a 50-50. So part of the monies went to WCB and part went to the chapters. I can't thank our treasurer and finance and fundraising committee chair, Lisa George, enough for getting us involved in that. And for those of you who were able to attend the pre-convention board meeting last night, you know, we're going to continue with that, which is really exciting. I'd like to thank board member Haley Agers she did developed a zoom and call survey so thank you Haley very much and the survey results she got 14 responses we were asking people how comfortable do you feel excuse me 15 were returned how comfortable do you feel with zoom because we'd like to provide zoom training for those that didn't feel that comfortable and what kinds of community calls within WCB would you like to see? That's what the survey was all about. And some topic interests of interest included socialization, music, independent living skills, and technology training. So we got that far with the survey. We didn't get any further with that. So our plan is to progress on both Zoom training and more WCB community calls in the coming year. We also had, and if those of you, again, who were at the board meeting last night heard Sherry Richardson, our governmental affairs committee chair, talk about this, but I'm going to briefly overview it because it was really a big deal. In 2021, we had the D.C. Leadership Conference, and that was connected, of course, with ACB. It occurred on February 21st through the 23rd, 2021. There was a president's meeting that was held on February 21st, and this is really a leadership development meeting. Then the legislative seminar was held on the 22nd and 23rd. The neat thing about it this year was virtual, (laughs) so a lot more people got to participate. Generally, um, we send the president and a couple other people to D.C. for this conference to do it in person, but This year we did it virtually and you know everything had to be transitioned to virtual and we all we wondered how is this going to work, is it really going to happen. But WCB made a very good showing we had 19 people that signed up for the seminar, which was really exciting and the legislative imperatives i'll just briefly talk about the legislative imperatives, but one was to um, secure vision equipment within medicare. The other imperative that we dealt with was the Disability Access to Transportation Act. And the third imperative that we presented to the legislators was the Exercise and Fitness for All Act, making exercise equipment accessible to blind and visually impaired people. So it's really, the neat thing is, ACB decides what imperatives we're gonna focus. And um, what we did was we had five different leads within teams. We connected with people in various districts Contacted all of the legislators and the senators, and we got a hold of all of them. Actually, I was really very impressed. I'd like to thank the people that headed those five teams, and that was Denise Colley, Deb Cook, Lewis, Lynn Corral, Frank Cuda, and myself. And then Sherry Richardson made contact with our senators. We all felt, as Sherry said last night, that virtually we got a little more time with them. It was kind of nice, because when you go in person, it's kind of sit down, talk, and let's leave because they're so busy. So that was a very good experience for us. Well, we can't talk about WCB without talking about COVID. So let me talk about how COVID affected us this year. First of all, the convention. And as you can certainly tell, The board had to make a very difficult decision to hold this year's convention virtually one more time. We discussed uh, at our May board meeting when the decision was made, both hybrid, trying to do a hybrid and in-person convention, but due to continued uncertainty, the decision was made to do it virtually again. We're of course hoping for a different venue in-person next year, in-person and or hybrid. We decided to use the same voting method that we used for last year so those of you who were with us last year remember how we went out to the voting rooms and all of you have your voting pin and your voting room color so that is will be done in our business meeting tomorrow and very soon you'll be hearing from the nominating committee about the positions that are up the leadership summit this year as you know WCB always holds a leadership training in the spring in coordination or in connection with our spring board meeting. And this year, again, we could not meet in person. We made that decision. So our leadership committee, and that was chaired by Holly Turi, were ingenious as far as realizing we did already select our participants, and we didn't want them to just sit and wait until we could meet in person. We weren't going to let COVID do that to us. So what they decided to do was have monthly leadership training calls, and the participation by participants was very, very strong. Very excited to see that. And these calls included, and I'm not including it all because I don't have it all down, but conflict resolution, how to run a meeting, developing an agenda, Robert's Rules of Order, etc. So very successful. So thank you, Holly, and committee very much. COVID also lended to some membership illness and sorry to say, WCB has had a couple deaths due to COVID, which is very, very sad. Um, and some members had COVID from mild to severe. This has been a factor in WCB progressing forward on some of the goals that they had such as strategic planning and the survey. Some people just you know, were not sick and able to do that. And that was my case. Um, I was sick for a couple months and I thank very much it's amazing, but what I saw in the officers and the board members stepping up to the plate, Andy helping me run some monthly meetings, Sherry ran the board meeting in May. Thank you very much, but COVID did hit WCB, and we're especially sorry for the deaths that occurred. As, as I already mentioned, we have a virtual convention for WCB, and we also had one this summer for ACB. So here we go. We all were part of a virtual convention in July, July 16th through the 23rd with more than a hundred events during the week to attend. Very, very exciting. I really appreciated that ACB prepared people strongly for the convention. They had several meetings about what to expect, how to handle things, how things would be done. One of those things was voting. And that was very different because we had to get votes from people And how do we do that? And they used a process called, um, darn, I can't remember the name of their, oh, they call it Vote Now, that was it. It was online voting that was done. So thank you to First Vice President Andy Arvidsson and myself, we counted the votes. I took everyone's vote via email, Andy took them by phone, and then we were on an ACB (coughs) um, connection and gave our votes for all the positions and all the things we had to vote on. And that was interesting. We did a voting practice, which I appreciate Sherry and Andy being involved in that. Another thing we did this year for the ACB convention, a little different, we had a group of people that go out to all chapters that were interested and talk about the ACB convention. That was Frank, Denise, and myself. And we connected with people and said, here's what to expect, here's how you're going to connect, here's what you'll find out, etc. And We're planning to implement that maybe next year for the WCB convention. We didn't get it done this year, but we're going to consider doing that. But that was quite successful in that so many people wanted that group to talk to them so many chapters. In regard to the ACB convention, WCB is truly on the map. And I just want to give congratulations to some of our members. First of all, our own Deb Cook Lewis was elected as ACB's first vice president. Our own Denise Colley was reelected as ACB secretary. Our own Jeff Bishop was reelected as an ACB board member. Congratulations, you three. No one's gonna forget about Washington with you in those positions. It's always exciting when a new chapter or affiliate is born and we had a new one this year, yay. At our August 7th board meeting, the board accepted an affiliate request from the newly formed Clark County Council of the Blind. And kudos. Okay. Oops. And kudos. Oh, it's okay. Do what you need to. <laughs> Hang on one second. Someone is unmuted on the panelist side. Would you ask Jimmy, please? Okay. And this chapter is in Vancouver, Washington.
3: I did. It's sitting right there. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything I can do to make this easier? (laughs) You just have to look.
1: Let's see, I wonder if we can mute people maybe. I think I got it. And this chapter is located in Vancouver, Washington. And this is truly the huge vision and work of newly elected chapter president, Bob Kavanaugh. And also thank you to our first vice president, Andy Arvidson, who worked with Bob through this process and helped get this chapter organized. We are so excited about this. We've tried many times to develop a WCB chapter in Vancouver. Hasn't worked before, but it's going to work this time. So congratulations, Clark County Council of the Blind. We tried something new this year with Department of Services for the Blind, and we had what we call a DSB connection meeting. It was really exciting that we did this, I think. We held this on August 4th and there were 18 WCB participants involved. And it was a chance for both WCB and NFB members to connect with DSB executive staff, just to find out what's going on with the agency and how they saw the future. It was really a very good conversation. Next thing I'd like to bring up is something for next year that I have dreams about and hoping will happen. The first thing is called, I'm calling it intentional mentoring. I'm going to be chairing the leadership committee next year, and the leadership committee will be charged with developing an intentional mentoring program for WCB. So along with an article regarding regarding mentoring, I shared with the board my reasoning for the importance of this endeavor, and I'm going to share that with you right now. It's important, I think, that all of you hear this because all of you, frankly, every member is hopefully going to be touched by this project. And here's what I wrote to the board. I said, let me share with you my thoughts and concerns that lead me to feeling a discussion on this issue is paramount for our organization, WCB, particularly if we want to continue in our essence of strength that we have for many years. The leadership of WCB is getting older, and we have some significant We've had some significant deaths and people moving who've been strong pillars and leaders. So please note, this doesn't mean that age, how funny, is a disqualifying leadership factor due to the aging process. It's just an awareness that we need new leaders, young and old, to be ready to both take on leadership and to share the leadership process with members We need members to be poised and ready to take on various leadership roles. And my intention is that this, my contention is this doesn't happen by osmosis. I am aware also that more casual mentoring occurs all the time at both the chapter and committee levels. Uh, And the reason for this is appointing a vice chair of committees for succession planning. But again, I truly do believe that it's not intentional enough. My vision, and I look forward to the input for your vision and that was asking the board, is to have each officer and some board members Locate members who have interest and potential in these leadership areas and work on mentoring them with a program, a process, and very intentionally. And so this is the reason for the mentoring article I shared, and I shared an article with the board, and we noted some segments in that article about how important mentoring was. So that's something I will be doing. It's going to be... um, very, very intentional and very focused, and I will be disconnecting myself from several committees actually just to be able to pursue this. So, and I've already asked a couple of people to work with me on this process. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of those people I've asked is Steve Fixel, who has done a lot of leadership training, in fact, has his degree in that. So that's exciting. We're going to be doing that. Another thing I hope to do, and this is just me dreaming again, is to develop another chapter. And we've talked about this for a long time. And the chapter development I would like to consider is that of a chapter in East King County. And I know we have one current member who's very interested in that. I've already gone through the membership list and noted all of the people that live in East King County. And we actually have enough people. We like to have at least 12 people to start a new chapter. 10 is required via the bylaws, but we like to have 12 to help that chapter be strong. And it's important to have enough people or the chapter can die. So we'll be looking into that too. That concludes my president's report. I hope we've given you, or I hope I've given you a really good idea about how very busy and active we've been this year. We did not let COVID stop us, obviously. So thank you everyone so much for all of your work and input. I just can't say enough about how much work WCB members do both at the board level and at the president, presidents of chapter level and at the committee chair and vice chair level. Thank you very much. Next, I'd like to call on the nominating committee chair to give our report and that is Sherry Richardson. Good
4: morning, everyone. Um, I would like to present our slate of officers for 2022. And that begins with, The Office of President, which is Julie Brannon for a second term. Um, The Office of First Vice President is Andy Arvidson, for his first full term as first vice president. Uh, For the Office of Treasurer is Lisa George, who is, um, this will be her second term, I believe. I know at least it's her second term. Um, For directors, we have three. The first is Nathan Brannon for a second term, Kim Moberg for a first full term, and our new person on the nominating slate, uh, Linda Marks Wilder. I want to thank all of the candidates or all of the participants who applied um, or sent me their their statement of interest. Uh, It was actually a difficult decision this year we had some really good people put forth their names, and that's much appreciated. Um, I also, especially, want to thank Denise and Alco for serving on the committee with me. Um, they <laughs> they kept me straight, <laughs> and uh, and hope this is the first time I've done the nominating committee. So um, this has all been a, a great learning experience for me as well. So thank you for that, Julie.
5: Well, thank you,
1: Well, thank you for taking it on. I called, Sherry, I said, hey, would you be nominating committee chair? And she goes, what? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I can't say no to Julie. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Sherry, so much. Appreciate thank the work. You. It's not an easy job. Next, we have a report from our Constitution and Bylaws Committee Chair, Frank Cuda. And he's going to read us our proposed amendments to our governing documents.
6: Oh, that's an exaggeration, but I'm going to present them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <clears throat> the uh, Constitution and Bylaws Committee has been working hard all year long. <laughs> we, we have seven uh, proposed amendments to the Constitution that we, we are going to read. This is the first reading, uh, which is required. And then tomorrow afternoon, we'll read them again and discuss them and vote on them. So now as, uh, there's no discussion or questions We're just going to read them. Go ahead.
5: Amendment 2021-1. The purpose of this amendment is to add a provision that candidates for officer positions should be residents of Washington State or contiguous counties at the time of their election. Existing language, Article 6, Officers and Their Duties. Section 1, Officers. On odd-numbered years, there shall be elected a president, first vice president, and a treasurer, and on even-numbered years there shall be elected a second vice president and secretary, each for two-year terms. No officer shall serve for more than two consecutive full terms in the same office. The president, first vice president, and second vice president must be legally blind. The terms of all officers shall begin on the first day of January, following the convention at which they are elected. Proposed Language Section 1. Officers On odd-numbered years, there shall be elected a president, first vice president, and a treasurer, and on even-numbered years, there shall be elected a second vice president and secretary, each for two-year terms. No officers shall serve for more than two consecutive full terms in the same office. The president, first vice president, and second vice president must be legally blind. All candidates for officer positions must be Washington State residents at the time of election or live in a contiguous county. The terms of all officers shall begin on the first day of January, following the convention at which they are elected. Amendment 2021-2. This amendment clarifies that authority to approve applications for affiliation rests with the Board of Directors and that factors beyond compliance with minimal requirements may be considered. Existing Language Article 4 Affiliates Section 1 Application for Affiliation Any local chapter or special interest group desiring to become an affiliate of this organization shall apply for affiliation by electronically submitting to the WCB President a copy of his Constitution all required membership data in the WCB approved format, and a list of elected officers and board members. Both an existing organizational bank account and a minimum of 10 dues-paying members are required to be considered for affiliation. WCB will calculate the state and national dues owed by the new affiliate and notify the president of the total amount due. The constitution of the new affiliate will be reviewed by the Constitution and Bylaws Committee for conflicts with the WCB state constitution. The WCB president must receive payment of dues and an affirmative response from the chair of the WCB Constitution and Bylaws Committee prior to acceptance. When this organization, either in convention assembled, during a special meeting, or by action of the board of directors, shall have approved the application, it shall issue to the new affiliate a certificate of acceptance. Proposed Language, Article 4, Affiliates, Section 1, Application for Affiliation. Any local chapter or special interest group desiring to become an affiliate of this organization shall apply for affiliation by electronically submitting to the WCB President a copy of its Constitution for review by the WCB Constitution and Bylaws Committee, all required membership data in the WCB-approved format, and a list of elected officers and board members. Both an existing organizational bank account and a minimum of 10 dues-paying members are required to be considered for affiliation. The WCB Treasurer will calculate the total amount due and notify the applicant. The dues payment must be received by the WCB Treasurer to complete the application. Authority to approve an affiliate application rests with the WCB Board of Directors. Along with confirming that the requirements for affiliation have been met, the Board may consider other factors surrounding the efficacy and viability of the potential new affiliate. Upon approval of the application, a certificate of acceptance shall be issued to the new affiliate. Amendment 2021-3. This amendment changes the name of a committee and reorders the list. Existing language: Bylaw 1, WCB Standing Committees, B, Aging and Blindness. Members of this committee work to improve the lives of senior citizens experiencing vision loss. Proposed language: Bylaw 1, WCB Standing Committees, R, Senior Vision Loss. Members of this committee work to improve the lives of senior citizens experiencing vision loss. Amendment 2021-4. This amendment provides for the early appointment of the Government Affairs Committee in order for them to hit the ground running in January. Existing Language By-law 1 WCB Standing Committees. The following standing committees are established and unless otherwise specified in the Constitution, All appointments to them should be completed by January 31 each year. The president has the authority to combine, separate, or reassign the duties of committees as the need arises. Members of all committees serve on the behalf of the organization and the board, promoting WCB principles, ideals, and interests. Issues and concerns discovered by any committee shall be reported to the board in a timely manner. Proposed language, bylaw 1, WCB Standing Committees. The following Standing Committees are established and unless otherwise specified in the Constitution, all appointments to them should be completed by January 31 each year, with the following exception. Appointments should be made to the Government Affairs Committee immediately following the State Convention to provide a new committee the time to prepare for the upcoming legislative session. The President has the authority to combine, separate, or reassign the duties of committees as the need arises. Members of all committees serve on the behalf of the organization and the Board, promoting WCB principles, ideals, and interests. Issues and concerns discovered by any committee shall be reported to the Board in a timely manner. Amendment 2021-5. This amendment, clarifies the eligibility requirement. Existing language, by law four, WCB first timers to ACB convention. B, eligibility and expectations. In order to be considered for this award, an individual needs to have never previously attended an ACB convention. Proposed language, by law four, WCB first timers to ACB convention. B, Eligibility and expectations. In order to be considered for this award, an individual needs to have never previously attended an ACB convention in person. Amendment 2021 6. This amendment clarifies the eligibility requirement. Existing language, bylaw 8, member incentives to attend the WCB state convention. A first timer selection. Each year, the WCB will select one or more members to attend the state convention as first-timers. Application procedures and the application deadline date will be determined by the board and announced on or before the second board meeting of the year. Each first-timer applicant must submit a personal letter to the chair of the awards committee requesting this award. First timers must not have previously attended a WCB state convention as a registered voting member. After the president or his, her designee has confirmed eligibility, the committee will review the applications and select the award winners. Proposed language, by law eight, member incentives to attend the WCB state convention. A, first timer selection. Each year, WCB will select one or more members to attend the state convention as first-timers. Application procedures and the application deadline date will be determined by the board and announced on or before the second board meeting of the year. Each first-timer applicant must submit a personal letter to the chair of the awards committee requesting this award. First-timers must not have previously attended a WCB state convention in person as a registered voting member. After the president or his or her designee has confirmed eligibility, the committee will review the applications and select the award winners. Amendment 2019-2. This amendment adds a requirement that new affiliates must be registered as a nonprofit in the state of Washington and all affiliates must maintain an active status as a nonprofit. It also outlines the consequences of non-compliance with any of these requirements. Existing Language Article 4 Affiliates Section 1 Application for Affiliation Any local chapter or special interest group desiring to become an affiliate of this organization shall apply for affiliation by electronically submitting to the WCB President a copy of its Constitution, All required membership data in the WCB approved format and a list of elected officers and board members, both an existing organizational bank account and a minimum of 10 dues-paying members are required to be considered for affiliation. No change to remaining language. Section two, affiliate responsibilities. No change to the language in the first three paragraphs. No group shall be accepted as an affiliate and no group shall remain an affiliate unless at least a majority of its voting members are legally blind. The president, vice presidents, and at least a majority of the elected committee or board of directors of each affiliate must be legally blind. The president of this organization shall be an ex officio member of each affiliate. Proposed Language Article 4 Affiliates Section 1, Application for Affiliation. Any local chapter or special interest group desiring to become an affiliate of this organization shall apply for affiliation by electronically submitting to the WCB president a copy of its constitution, all required membership data in the WCB-approved format, the UBI number and optional Washington Charities Registration number, and a list of elected officers and board members. Both an existing organizational bank account and a minimum of 10 dues-paying members are required to be considered for affiliation. Section 3. Affiliate Compliance Parameters No group shall be accepted as an affiliate and no group shall remain an affiliate unless at least a majority of its voting members are legally blind. The president, vice presidents, and at least a majority of the elected committee or board of directors of each affiliate must be legally blind. The affiliate must be registered as a Washington nonprofit corporation and maintain an active status. The president of this organization shall be an ex officio member of each affiliate. In the event that an affiliate is out of compliance in any of these requirements, The affiliate will be given a written notification by the WCB president or designee, which starts a 90-day grace period to resolve the situation. Failure to comply will cause the affiliate to be made inactive. In the event that an affiliate has been made inactive, the affiliate will be formally notified in writing by the WCB president and given 90 days from that date to resolve the situation. Failure to comply will cause the affiliate to be placed on probation and members of the affiliate shall be designated as members at large in the organization until the affiliate resumes active status. An affiliate on probation who remains in that status for one year will have its certificate of acceptance revoked.
6: Madam Chairman, this is Frank Huda. And that completes the first reading of our proposed amendments. I would like to thank Lisa George for that reading. Outstanding, and the other members of the committee, jessamine lambie, Rhonda, Rhonda Nelson, Stuart Russell, Sherry Richardson, and daniel Mary Daniel Mayor Jack. Thank you very much, committee. That completes our report.
1: Thank you very much, Frank. Ooh, a lot of work. That committee works hard. You know what? We're a little ahead of schedule, so guess what I think it's time for, and that is door prizes. I was told I could give two away this morning. Maybe I'll cheat and give three (laughs) because of our timing issue. But anyway, do we have our door prize people ready to give a first door prize? We have recordings here that Lisa and Reg did.
7: Our first drawing is for the early birds who got their registrations in by September 30th. Frank's going to draw for us. We, th- we're giving away a $50 Amazon gift card donated by United Blind of Tri-Cities.
6: And the winner is Colette Arvidson from Manicortis.
1: Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, Some Amazon buying is ahead of her, I think. That's exciting. Congratulations, Colette. Let's do another one.
7: Our next drawing is for a $25 Amazon gift card donated by United Blind of Whatcom County. Sally? Oh, it's Julie Brannan from Puyallup, <laughs> Washington.
0: Wow. Yay! Surprise! Rigged. Yay! Surprise.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've got some shopping to do. How fun. You know, it's funny when people think and say, I never win a prize. And just after that thought, because I was thinking, oh, I don't plan on winning one this time, it comes through. So thank you guys very much. We are a little ahead of schedule. I'm trying to think. It's about 945. I think we'll just start with um, Kirk. And then if we need some more time, we might do another door prize. So Kirk Adams, hopefully he's on board here. And Kirk is our keynote speaker. Kirk is currently, and I should say Dr. Kirk Adams, forgive me, Kirk. He is currently the CEO of the American Foundation of the Blind, and he's going to share with us a little bit about AFB and also about his journey as a blind person in accomplishing all the admirable life goals that he's accomplished. And Kirk, we got to know him well when he was here in Washington State as the CEO of the Lighthouse for the Blind Incorporated. So Kirk, hopefully you're with us. I am. Yay. Thanks for Thanks. coming and joining you us. Bet.
8: You're on. Okay. So I, I had just just logged on. So that, that that was the intro and now it's me. It's you. And how how, how and how, how long are we going here, Julie?
1: Well, you've got a half hour on the schedule. Perfect.
8: Okay. Will there be time for QA? Oh yes. Plenty. Okay. Great. So I'll I'll try to I'll try to condense my uh
1: well, don't it's condense don't, here. No, you don't have to condense because we're
8: under time. So, okay. Oh, great. Great. So, uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, as Julie mentioned, I, I am Kirk Adams. And, and since, since I've talked, I, I, I'm sure I know lots of you. And uh, since the last time we've talked, I, I have finished my doctorate. So, I, I will call myself Dr. Kirk Adams now. And I am president and CEO of the American Foundation for the Blind (AFB), and I'll, I'll uh, numerous times I'll invite you to visit afb.org and uh, see what we're up to. But I was, uh, I was born in Aberdeen, Washington. Um, my parents were actually in college when I was born. My dad was playing basketball at Western Washington and Bellingham. They were both um, getting their Uh, degrees in education to become public school teachers and I was born sighted and then when I was in kindergarten we were living in Linwood Washington at the time Uh, both my retinas detached I had um, some congenitally weak blood vessels in my eyes that no one was aware of and uh, they they hemorrhaged and the pressure from the hemorrhage detached both of my retinas and uh I was rushed to Cabrini Hospital and had my first unsuccessful <laughs> retinal surgery, uh, of which there were many to follow. But, um, you know, I, I was born in 1961, so this was the mid-60s. And uh, my, my parents uh, didn't, didn't know any blind people, had never met a blind person until uh, I became one. And, um, you know, they were told that uh, I wouldn't be allowed to come back to the neighborhood school that I would need to go to the state school for for the blind. And uh, they visited the Washington State School, which uh, in Vancouver, uh, which is now one of the best schools for blind kids in the country. But at that time, not so much. And they visited and they were not um, very impressed with the uh, level of academic activity there my retinal surgeon, Dr. Kenneth Swan was at the university of Oregon medical school in Portland. And so we were going down there very frequently, um, for, for appointments. And, uh, I spent, spent a fair amount of time in Dornbecker, the children's floor, at the U of O medical school back in the day. And, uh, someone in his office said that, uh, they had a lot of kids come in there from the Oregon state school and, uh, they seemed to be doing great. And, uh, also, it seemed to be sharp, and on top of it, and uh, so my parents visited the Oregon State School in Salem, and really, really thought it was it was great. And uh, when I was a five or six year old; I didn't really appreciate this very much. But they quit they quit their jobs in Washington State. I had a younger brother, uh, three years younger, and then a sister came along later. But moved moved to or- the state of Oregon, so I could go to school at OSB. And uh, we lived in Silverton, Oregon, which is about 15 miles from Salem. And that allowed me to be a day student rather than live in the dorms like a lot of the other kids. So I, uh, I went to the Oregon State School for the Blind for first, second, and third grade. And the model was that you would uh, go, go to the School for the Blind, learn your blindness skills uh, to the point where you could uh, – succeed in public school and then then start public school when when you're ready to do that so you know there's a couple couple I guess important dynamics in my life as I as I look back and one of them was the fact that I became totally blind um, prior to first grade and there was no question of whether or not I needed to learn Braille or cane travel um, or to type on a typewriter back 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 in that that time, so there, there was no question that I needed blindness skills, and I was fully immersed in that. And uh, so I'm you no know, strong daily uh, re- reader and writer of braille. I got a slate and stylus, uh, Perkins to my left. I' have uh, a uh, Braille note taker on my lap, an 80 character braille display in front of me, um, ton, ton, tons of braille around the house. So um, I had a wonderful teacher mrs summers was her name she's passed away but she was a gen- gentle uh but firm taskmaster and i can remember her um making me spend hours and uh, hours and hours on the sweepback books which were just books with lines of character so you could um get your hand motions down You know, start start the line with both hands and fin- finish with the right while you find the beginning of the next line with your left and uh I can remember asking her, you know, can I can I learn to read now? And she'd say, nope, nope, you're not you're not ready to learn how to read. You need to learn how to do this first. <laughs> and uh, in third grade, I started going to public school half a day. So I'd go to the School for the Blind in the morning. And then I learned how to walk the 10, 10 blocks or so to a uh, nearby public school. And I would attend there in the afternoons. And then starting in fourth grade, I started going to the public school in Silverton. And I went all the way through elementary, junior high, high school, college, graduate school. And I was always the only blind student in my classes after after my time at the School for the Blind. And a couple of other reflections during that time um, My parents were both teachers, as I mentioned, they were very focused on academics. And so it was always do your homework first. And my dad was a basketball coach, so we were were expected to um, be involved in sports. So I wrestled and I ran cross country and cross country skied and and those things. Um, I think just as importantly as learning my blindness skills at the school for the blind was to learn how to be really confident in my body as a blind person and to love, love my body and and what it could do. So I was there with 110, 120 blind kids and they had us, you know, at at the Oregon coasts, you know, exploring the tide pools. We went backpacking in the three sisters wilderness area. We we, went, went up Mount hood and built snow forts. We climbed trees. We skinned knees. We did all the things that little kids, do but um, we, weren't, we weren't restrained or constrained and um, I, th- I think the school was run by a, by, a, by a lot of 1960s hippies and we did a lot of fun stuff and they were very adventurous and they had us doing all kinds of all kinds of cool stuff a lot, like, lot, lots of experiential <laughs> learning and then in high school, junior high I think the skiing, wrestling, cross country um, all kind of built on that and that confidence, and now that I now that I understand research, and I've I've done research, um, I understand the concept of the internal locus of control as opposed to the external locus of control. So, um, blindness skills are, are something that has allowed me to to do the things I've done. But the other thing is that um, research shows that. Um, especially in the realm of employment, that having a strong internal sense of control is a, is a success factor. And that, that means you believe in your bones that you can create your own path, you can forge your way, you can overcome obstacles. As opposed to an external locus of control, uh, which means you, you feel in your bones that thing, things happen to you. Um, you, you don't have a lot of power to do anything about it, and uh, you're kind of at, at the whim whims of the universe so we we know now if we we do research on and i did my dissertation in this area what are what are the factors that lead to successful employment for people who are who are blind and uh, that strong internal uh, sense of internal locus of of control is one of those success factors and i was fortunate enough to be in some circumstances that allowed me to develop that Uh, another another reflection uh, graduated from Snohomish High School, and there were probably 30, 35 kids who were kind of the college-bound kids. Um, so senior year, we all had first period together, and it was physics. And then second period was math analysis. And third period was chemistry. And I, I walked into the chemistry class the first day, and the chemistry teacher just uh, plain as day said, you, you cannot take this class. It would not be safe for you to take this class. Um, You need to go to the office and uh, and make a change. So I I was very upset and I went home and went home and told my parents and we just, we didn't have advocacy skills. We weren't um, connected with uh, any blind individuals. We didn't know any successful blind adults. Um, So, you know, my parents said, well, if if Mr. So-and-so says you can't take chemistry, I guess you can't take chemistry. So I sat in a study hall, you know, all, all year, third period. And, um, now of course I know of blind people can certainly study chemistry and I've met blind, um, PhDs in chemistry and I've met blind chemistry professors and I have a friend who is a chemist who started a, uh, a, um, flavors company and just sold it for many millions of dollars. So, um, when we look at the expanded core curriculum, which is a concept AFB helped develop, it basically says that the blind blind kids need to learn everything the sighted kids learn but, and nine, nine extra things, which is O&M, use of assistive technology, career exploration, and one is self-advocacy. So I just applaud um, the council uh, that you are a place people can go who need support and advocacy, um, where you can learn from one another. Um, you know, an, I, an IEP was not invented when when I when I was in school. But uh, you know, parents have uh, so, so many resources now, and uh, obviously the council is a is a very very important resource, especially in the area of advocacy. So um, graduate from high school. Um, was offered a full scholarship to attend Whitman College in Walla Walla, which I accepted joyously, and went off to college, and um, met met a young lady there the first week who we, Roz who and I have been married now thirty six years. Ooh. Wow! <laughs> that was a nice that was a nice benefit. Um, but again, I I did well academically. I was Phi Beta Kappa and uh, cum laude, and had a four point. In my chosen field, which is ec- economics, and uh, senior year, I applied to a couple of graduate schools, got in, um, and then just decided I, I, I didn't want to. I didn't want more school. I wanted to go to work. I wanted to um, be able to buy a, get married and buy a house and have kids. And so I started applying for jobs before I before I left school. I, I had the IBM Selectric with erase tape, which was the leading, <laughs> leading uh, edge technology at the time. So you know, I wrote up a resume and a cover letter, got copies made on nice paper. And I, I decided you know I wanted to live in Seattle. I didn't want to go back and live in Snohomish where there was no public transportation or services. So I was applying for jobs in Seattle and um, you know, basically in the finance area. And uh, I would get a phone call and say, let's have a telephone interview. And I'd do my telephone interview and they'd say, great, come in for the in-person interview. And I'd walk in with my white cane and my little folder of Braille paper and my slate and stylus. And uh, you know, like, like so many blind people have experienced, just the, the confusion <laughs> would set in uh, the room as the employer sitting across the table could not conceive of how a blind person could could do the job that uh, they were hiring for and uh, so I wasn't I wasn't getting hired and then as many of us do um, there's a there's a decision to be made somewhere along the process of where to disclose your disability so I um, changed my cover letter and I said I'm totally blind this is how I do what I've done this is how I'll do the job that I'm applying for and uh, then I wasn't even then I wasn't even getting the phone interviews so I just started casting my wet my net wider and wider I I was living in my parents basement by that time in Snohomish and I sent a letter to a, a small brokerage firm called Harper McLean and company they were hiring for securities salespeople. And the sales manager had also gone to Whitman College, was also an econ major. He was maybe 15 years ahead of me. So he called some of the professors in the department, and they, you know, they said, yeah, Kirk, Kirk's a capable guy. He, he, can, he can sell tax-free municipal bonds. So I was hired to do that, and I did that for 10 years. And that was on straight commission, um, 50 cold calls a day, every day. Um, throughout my twenties, which built, built strong character and allowed me to get married and to buy a house and to have our kids. And then when I, when I, when I turned 30, uh, the, the small firm I had, was working for, had been purchased by a regional bank. Then that regional bank was bought by a big bank and uh, it, it was it wasn't as fun anymore. And I uh, decided that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. Um so I checked out the What Color is your parachute book from the Talking Book and Braille Library. And I followed every exercise and did the little essays and answered the questions and it leads you through a process. And at the end, um I got clarity that I wanted to be in the nonprofit sector. I wanted to be in a leadership role and i wanted to work for an organization that created opportunities for for people who are blind and i wanted to and, and it needed to be in seattle so that that was was what i what i learned from that process and then the next next steps in the book are how how to get there so part part of that was informational interviews and so find someone who's doing what you want to do and and ask for an informational interview which is beautiful sound advice for anyone who's doing career career exploration, especially young people. Um, like I said before, my parents were were teachers. Everyone they knew was a teacher. Uh, I knew no one in the business world. I had no exposure to how business worked. I was very very naive about all of that. So I contacted a woman who was CEO of Planned Parenthood of Western Washington and asked her for an informational interview. And it turns out that she had also started her work work career as a securities broker. And she had also decided she wanted to pivot to the nonprofit sector. And uh, she was a very dynamic, um, enthusiastic person. And she said, if I were you, I would enter the nonprofit sector through fundraising because there is such a huge need in our sector for professional resource development people. And you have spent the last 10 years talking with wealthy people about money and their financial goals. So this would, this would be a perfect way for you to enter the sector. So I, 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 <laughs> I did what she told me. I started applying for fundraising jobs around Seattle and not getting hired because I didn't have any experience, and this was 1993. So I got a, uh, along in there somewhere, I I received a newsletter from the Talking Book and Braille Library, Jan Ames um, had had written the the newsletter and it said that um, the library needed to raise $200,000 or cancel the Evergreen Radio Reading Service. So I called Jan and talked to her and told her my my tale and said, uh, how about if I come down to the library 20 hours a week and work on raising you the the $200,000 that you need, that will give me experience, something on my resume, I'll job hunt the rest of the time. And she said, sure, come on down. And again, looking back now at research, um, you know, Employment experience obviously is a, a crucial success factor, um, and paid work experience and volunteer work experience have the same same strong predictor um, strength uh, as one another. So, so vol- volunteer work is just as good a predictor of future employment su- success as paid paid work. Um, so, I did that. And I got a book from Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic on how to write grant proposals. And a library volunteer read through the Washington State Trust Directory with me. And uh, I sent letters of inquiry to any foundation in our state that seemed close to a fit. And I I received uh, some letters back saying, go ahead and submit a grant proposal. So I did that. And beginner's luck. Couple, couple nice-sized checks came in, and um, at that time, WTBBL was administered by the Seattle Public Library, and uh, they offered me a job. They created a job. Uh, my first nonprofit job was as a development officer for the Seattle Public Library Foundation and specifically to raise money for the State um, Talking Book and Braille Library. And I did that for about three and a half years. Got very clear that I wanted to be, to remain in the sector. So I I went back to school. I went to Seattle U, got a master's in not-for-profit leadership, which was a a couple-year program designed for people who who were working. So evenings and weekends. And um, had a couple other, had a couple nonprofit fundraising jobs after that. And then I was working for a large nonprofit childcare agency called Evergreen Children's Association when I got a call from the Lighthouse for the Blind, and uh, they said that they uh, their board had determined that they wanted to um, create a foundation and a comprehensive fundraising program, and they were looking for um, to hire someone. And they'd heard there was a blind guy in town who knew how to do that. And so I was invited to uh, come in for a tour, and my wife and I did that. And lo-, lo and behold, the lighthouse is about 14, 15 blocks from where we live. And I really had no idea what, what happened there. I knew it had something to do with employment um, for people who are blind, but that, that was about it. And uh, you know, we, 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 we took the tour and visited with you know, blind and deafblind people on uh, machine shop floor, making... Aircraft parts, and we visited the Deaf Blind program and learned about that. And uh, we were there a couple hours, and we walked out the front door. and My wife said, "You have to come and work here." So I I accepted that job. That was June of two thousand. And you know, I was was there four working at the lighthouse, four or five years, when uh, I, I was asked if I would take on. Um, some more responsibility in the at administrative areas and uh, a new position was created called general manager of administration. So it was, uh, you know, HR and marketing and communications and you know, ba- basically everything except for uh, you know, finance and the, and then the manufacturing operations. So, so all the admin stuff. And I, I, um, learned a lot, um, was in that role for two or three years when my predecessor, George Jacobson, let the board know that he was going to retire. And they, uh, they hired a search firm and put a search process together and um, looked at internal applicants first. And I, I, I applied and uh, I was given, given the opportunity uh, to move into the role of president and CEO of the, of the Lighthouse. And it was, a, uh, it was a 15-month transition period, which was a blessing and a curse, but we called it court- quarterly and orderly. So every three months, another uh, area of the lighthouse would, would begin reporting to me until over the course of the year, everything was reporting to me. And uh, George was still, still there as a resource, should I, should I need him? And then uh, you know, January 2008, um, he, he stepped away, and I, I became – present CEO we, we bought the uh, building that is now the inland Northwest lighthouse in Spokane uh, the, the first month I was on the job and if any of you'll recall what was happening in 2008 the economy <laughs> the economy was collapsing mm-hmm. um, so it was a very challenging uh, you know, time time to step into the role but um, over the over the next eight years, um, we went through a strategic planning process to really get focused on creating more jobs, um, driving wages up, um, career advancement, etc. cetera. And implementing uh, the plan led to some great things, in, including the Inland Northwest Lighthouse in Spokane, the um, facility in South Carolina, which we purchased that building just before I, I left for AFB. Uh, opening multiple offices in uh, in California, um, you know, increased the numbers of blind and deaf-blind people from about 150 to 240 or so over the time I was there. Drove, drove wages up. Um, you know, moved out of some product lines that, that weren't uh, very exciting or profitable. So I, I think I think did some really some some good things. Um, in the meantime, when I was first hired at the lighthouse, um, I was told that if I really wanted to understand the blindness field, I should go to the AFB leadership conference. It it was called the Josephine L Taylor leadership Institute at that time. So I went to my first AFB conference in Washington, DC in uh, February of 2001. And I've never missed, I've, I've gone every, every year. And, um, it was called. The theme was telling telling our stories with statistics, and it was a lot of university researchers who were presenting information about um, you know all the disparities that that we blind <laughs> people live with, uh, income disparities, health disparities, educational achievement, all, all the things you know that that uh, we need to be aware of, that we need to try to change. And I met a lot of uh, the really cool, smart, blind people. And uh, I started going to the conference every year. I was asked to join a committee, a program committee of AFB, probably around 2005 or six, And then was asked to join the board in about 2012. So I did that. And about two years in, um, my predecessor there, Carl Augusto, we were at the AFB Leadership Conference in Phoenix, and he invited me up to his, uh, his little presidential suite and he poured us both a glass of red wine and uh, we were sipping and talking. And he said, uh, this was March of 2014, I think. He said, I'm going to retire in May of 2016 and I believe that you are the person who can lead AFB into the next century. I would like you to think about that. And I told him I, I will think about that. I had also started my PhD program in 2010, 2010 through Antioch um, University, which is based in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And the doctorate is in leadership and change. And they have a Seattle campus. Um, so I, cho- I chose the program. There was like 50 days in class over the first three years. would did a rotation, Yellow Springs, Ohio, Keene, New Hampshire, Seattle, Washington, Santa Barbara, California. So we did 12 residencies, um, wrote a lot of papers, um so I was I, I had embarked on that and I was about you know halfway halfway through and uh you know talking talking to Roz. Um our kids were graduated from college, they were on their own, paying the paying their own way. It's a it's a wonderful feeling when your kid uh, offers to that they'll pay for dinner uh for the first for the first time. So we were at that stage and uh you know I was I was doing my doctorate but uh, and we determined that my career goal is to do the most I can, the best I can to create opportunities for, for people who are blind. And I certainly could have stayed at the Lighthouse and, and continued to do that work, but um, you know, AFB is a very unique organization in the blindness field, and I, uh, I only have one career, and if I'm going to maximize my impact, As a leader, I I didn't see any better place to do it from uh, than AFB. So, you know, some of the distinctions are AFB is not a membership organization like the council or the federation. We're a private nonprofit with with a national board. And we have a super broad charter. It's basically improved the lives of blind people in America. So we're not confined to any particular area, or particular group. And we're we're not required to serve kids or seniors. We're not um, required to focus on education or employment or technology. We can can decide at any given time where we can best direct our resources, which which is uh, is cool. And uh, so again, AFB hired a search firm and did a nationwide search. And I was one of three finalists. And they put, put us through a very rigorous interview process. And in January of twenty sixteen, I, I got the call that, that said they wanted to offer me the job. And we I wanted a good transition, so we negotiated that. So I had about five five months at the White House to wrap wrap things up and get things organized for for the next chapter. And in May of twenty sixteen, we um, moved to New York City. Um Left our left our quiet little neighborhood here in Lushai and moved uh, into Manhattan. Um, AFB put us up in corporate housing for six weeks in Hell's Kitchen, just off of Times Square. Uh, the office was at Two Penn Plaza, right next to Madison Square Garden. So uh, just jumped right jumped right into the heart of the city, which was a culture shock from a uh, kid from Snohomish, and. Um, we contracted AFB contracted with an organization called Visions in New York to give me o training. And the, the, the first day, Annalise, who is the o instructor, she said, what, what's your experience like in, in uh, traveling uh, in heavily trafficked uh, areas? I, I said, pretty good, I think. And so we walked along 43rd Avenue and turned right on 7th. And oh, my gosh, it was shoulder to shoulder people. Uh, nothing like I'd ever experienced before. Tra- you know, traveling independently, and I I learned things like never trust the pedestrians. Do not cross when other pedestrians cross. People cross against the light constantly. Um, you know, you have to listen for the through traffic. Don't pay any attention to the people. Um, learn how to carry. Always carry a spare cane in my bag because my cane got stepped stepped on and broken multiple times. Uh, navigating the city. But we uh, we were in corporate housing for six weeks, and um, Roz went out by day and visited different neighborhoods. And she she came home one evening and said, uh, I think I can live in Park Slope, which is in Brooklyn. And uh, we, we hired a uh, real estate firm. You, you can't really find your own apartment in New York, we learned. You have to have someone to help you. And uh, so we found... We found an apartment and a walk up, uh, in park slope. And, uh, what, what we could afford was a 530 square feet. Um, so it was small. Um, and we lived there for 14 months. Our daughter, Rachel actually had two teeny bedrooms. Our daughter, Rachel actually, uh, had an opportunity to, to move to New York for her work. So she lived with us for six months. I learned how to take the F train from, uh, Park Slope, um, transfer to the A train at J Street MetroTech, and uh, take the A into Penn Station, and go 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 fight my way through Penn Station up to the street, and walk walk down the block to the office, which again is right adjacent to Madison Square Garden. So it, it was it was crazy because that street Thirty Third Avenue was it changed every day depending on what was going on at Madison Square Garden. So. And one, one day they'd be setting up the red, red carpet for the video music awards. You know, the next day they'd be setting up a, a tent for a beer garden for the uh, New York Rangers hockey game. So it, it was quite an O&M um, lear- learning experience, <laughs> unlike any I'd ever had. Um, we went through a strategic planning process, um, really focused on two things, maximizing AFB's impact and uh, financial turnaround, the AFB had been uh, um, losing money from operations for a number of years and eating into the corporate reserve uh, that our friend Helen Keller spent so many years building. And uh, so it was—it uh, was definitely a financial turnaround situation, and a situation where AFB had, start, had started a lot of programs. Um, Some Sometimes uh, just because there was some initial funding, which then went away. Uh, There was just kind of a hodgepodge of stuff. And some people I say, it was like, it was like going into grandma's attic. Um, There's lots of stuff here. Some of it's really pretty valuable. Some of it needs to be cleared away. So um, we spent a year doing the plan and then we spent a year finding new homes for some of the programs that, uh, you know, we, we thought were very valuable to people, um, but didn't fit our new model, which is focused on systems change. And so we had a family of websites, family connect, career connect, vision aware that, uh, the American printing house for the blind now own and operate. Um, we had a center on vision loss in Dallas, which the Dallas lighthouse now operates. Um, we had, uh, continuing education for professionals in the field that Mississippi State University now has. So so that took us about a year. And then, uh, you know, in year three, we started uh, designing new programs, uh, restructuring, uh, created a public policy and research institute, brought the Journal of Visual Impairment and Blindness into that structure, um, formed up the Blind Leaders Development Program, which we just kicked off cohort number two last week. So we have 21 blind leadership fellows and 21 blind mentors and pairs. And it's a year long, uh, program based on the leadership challenge by Kuzas and Postner. We'll be flying everyone into our leadership conference next May. Um, great, great program. Uh, we've, we've framed up a program called talent lab where blind and sighted computer science majors, college students will be put into pairs and uh, we'll work on, uh, AFB consulting accessibility projects and, and, and get paid and get experience and um, be ready to move into industry. And then we're also very interested in apprenticeships. And uh, the Lighthouse gave me that, that insight with the AJAC program, the Aerospace Joint Apprenticeship mm-hmm. Committee program where you know, a number of employees from the Lighthouse have entered that paid that apprenticeship, pro, registered apprenticeship program um, take taken the classes, had the mentorship, and then be, become journeyman aerospace machinists. Mm-hmm. And there are 900 different careers that you can pursue through a registered apprenticeship program, yeah. including things like cybersecurity, uh, health records management, um, um, high high end help desk. So go- Google has apprenticeship apprenticeship programs, for instance. So we're uh, we're we're understanding how we can uh, be involved to lead the, some of these select, a, a select number of these registered apprenticeship programs to be more inclusive of people who are blind. There's statistically close to zero <laughs> blind people in these programs. Odep, the office of disability employment policy did a pilot last year. They put 500 people with disabilities into apprenticeship programs, not one blind person. And, uh, We looked at the last 80,000 closures from VR, cross-disability, but uh, only about 180 um, of 80,000 closures were placing people in registered apprenticeships. So we're excited about that. And um, in early July, uh, our dear friend, Gordon Gund, who started Foundation Fighting Blindness, been a longtime supporter of AFB. Uh, Through a number of conversations, he um, agreed that these employment-related interventions have a lot of merit. He thinks they'll be very impactful. We had had sketched out that I thought we'd need um, to raise $4 million over two years to get the programs up and running to where they could be producing outcomes. And he said he didn't want us to have to wait to raise all that money. So he made a $2 million personal mm-hmm. gift in early July. And then he challenged us to raise $2 million from other sources uh, over the next 12 months. And uh, upon doing that, his, his foundation will add, add another million. So we, we have an opportunity to accelerate our programs. Um, we've started hiring additional staff. We're short, shortening up the timelines on everything. I don't Kirk, know if I anybody, hate,
1: yeah. this is Julie, I hate to interrupt. you have about yeah. six minutes for questions. So
8: okay, okay. if you wanted to. So, so, so I'll, 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 I'll wrap. So um, suffice it to say we're very excited. Uh, we've done a lot of hard work and heavy lift over the last five years getting organized, structured, bringing in the right people. And uh, now with this in influx of um, financial resources, I, I think we're really poised to do some great things. And, uh, again, I'll invite you to go to AFB.org and sign up, sign up for, sign up for the newsletter. Let's keep in touch. You can always email me if you want to talk further about any of this. And, uh, thank you for having me and I'm happy to do my best to answer any questions people might have.
9: Hi, Kirk. It's actually Viola. And, um, boy, back in the day, I remember those days, but when I went to college, even in, in, uh in 99 and tried to take the, uh, biology course. Um, we had to fight because, you know, you have to go into the pig and, you know, and look <laughs> at the organs and do all that stuff. You know, yep. I had to fight to get into that class. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I remember, um, I was in college in the late seventies and it was you and your tape recorder and your, that's it. Um, and your, and your dog yeah. in my case and, you know, and that was it. Yep. You, 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 recorded the class. You didn't get a, uh, a, uh, note taker person to come and help you with notes. You didn't get a scribe or, you know, any of these things that yeah. they have now.
8: Well, it was kind of and interesting. I, I remember DSB paid for readers and I think it was four twenty five <laughs> an hour, whatever minimum wage was, but it was interesting as a, you know, an 18 year old kid, um, you know, interviewing, interviewing readers and uh, hire, hiring people and sometimes firing people and, you know, keeping track of, you know, track of invoices and hours and times and billing. And so, you know, not, not an experience that a lot of my classmates were having. So I, I, I oh, think I actually learned a lot from that.
1: And, and I, hate I really, to, I, hate, I hate to shift things it. off, but we have time for okay. one more question. Thank you. I just wanted to ask file. you
9: uh, about the computer about the computer classes? How can you find out more about those?
8: Our, oh, oh, the talent lab? Let's go to ASB.org.
1: Go to the website.
8: Go to the website. Great, thank you.
1: Thank you, Viola. One more, time for one more person, whoever is next in line. All right,
10: next we have Melissa.
9: Hey,
10: Melissa. Good morning, Um, am I unmuted? I believe I am. You are. All right, hi, Kirk. Um, this is Melissa Hudson from Burien, Washington, it. and as an as a former employee of the Lighthouse for the Blind um, for 13 years, I just want to say I'm so proud of you for all your accomplishments that you've made. I never knew your whole life story till just now, um, but I just want to say that because of your leadership and the example you've given to me over the years, um, I now have a new job working for another organization. I just started in September. And, um Thank you so very much, sir. And um, thank you for j- just your leadership and your, your, your um, I guess, wherewithal to just go about something and just not give up as a blind person and just take that leap of faith and do what you want to do. Thank you so much. And uh, God bless you. And thank you very much for being Thanks,
8: here. Melissa. I appreciate that. You just made my day.
10: Yeah, <laughs> I bet. As you can tell, WCB,
1: many people are, know Kirk very well. He was with us for so long. Let me see if we have time for one more.
8: Probably not. Kirk, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, and I'm, I'm Adams at afb.org. So K-A-D-A-M-S at afb.org. If anyone wants to um, reach out, feel free to email. and Happy Goodness. happy to share more about what we're
1: doing. I've got a question for you. So I'll be emailing you. Great. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And thanks for joining Enjoy me. the rest of
8: the convention. Have thank fun. Thank you
1: so much for coming. Appreciate okay, it. let's Very do it in
8: person next year, okay?
1: Uh, we'd like to. Right. <laughs> we'd like that. Thank you. Bye. Hi, bye-bye. Um, next we would be having Michael and Lisa on, but I have to back up just a bit. No wonder we had a little more time. I committed a faux pas and I forgot to ask for any nominations from the floor for the position. So I'm gonna do that quickly. What you'll do is raise your hand and then um, you'll be you'll unmute yourself and let us know what position you're interested in. So anyone from the floor, anyone else interested in running for the position of president? I'll wait a bit and have the zoomers tell me if they see anyone. No raise hands currently. Thank you. Okay. Anyone interested in running for the position of first vice president currently? Andy Arvidsson has been placed by the nominating committee for that position. And no raised hands. Anyone interested in running for the position of treasurer? currently Lisa George has been placed by the nominating committee for that position. And no raised hands. We have, as you know, three board positions. So anyone interested in running for the board? And what you want to remember is when you choose to run, you'll need to have two speakers. So, and this will be happening tomorrow during our business meeting. So any other interested people in running for the board? No raised hands. All right, well, that was short and sweet and easy. (laughs) Great. Um, I want to introduce the next presiding officer, and I want to give his apology for him. He was trying to get on this morning. This is Andy Arvidsson, first vice president, who is going to give the pledge, and he was not able to get in. So it wasn't because he didn't want to. He was trying. But Andy, you are on, and you have the next part of the morning.
11: Thank you, Julie. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Sorry I missed this morning's opening session. I got in about 7.04. Anyway. Um, our next panel is, is Michael McKallop and Lisa Wheeler from the Department of Services for the Blind. And they're going to talk about DSB careers. So, Michael, are you ready?
0: Michael and Lisa are ready. Thanks, Andy.
12: Hi there. It's nice to be here.
0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Michael McKillop. I'm the acting executive director for Department of Services for the Blind and my colleague Lisa. Introduce yourself.
12: I'm Lisa Wheeler, and I'm the assistant director of Vocational Rehabilitation and Workforce at the agency. Thanks for having me.
0: Really thrilled to be here with WCB. Um, I love always how WCB has such as one of its main components a focus on employment and work and careers, and uh, that that just really thrills me that you get into the depth of what work is and 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 know that work is a meaningful part of our lives. So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, we've been asked to talk about the future of work, which is kind of broad and probably broader than careers at DSB, um, a, a very broad topic that will involve uh, our conversation about vocational rehabilitation and services and, and how DSB is adjusting to the future of work. But I want to give kind of a broad context to the future work and where we're going to be in terms of uh, what careers exist and, and what skills we need to have. And before I go there, I want to give maybe a little bit of context before we go to the future. Let's look to the past. The future is going to be a lot of change, but the past has been changed too. There's no question. When we look at any number of jobs, how that job has been done, how that job has been automated, how technology has changed that job, uh, how the economy has changed that job. We have examples throughout. Um, so we know that the job that we're in may not look the same after a number of years. Um, when we look at uh, manufacturing, uh, Kirk Adams was talking about uh, the lighthouse and the manufacturing and how in 1970, manufacturing was mainly done by one person and, and machining um, and, and creating the, the, the product over time, technology became more and more prevalent, where CNC uh, machines and other computerized mach- manufacturing machines uh, became more prevalent. And there's still jobs there, even though there's additional technology. Uh, but the jobs and the focus of those jobs have changed from, from you know, handling the machinery to handling the computerized mechanisms that do the manufacturing and make the product. When we look at the grocery industry, we see that that change has happened as well. We used to have individualized checkers uh, helping us out uh, with our groceries and uh, uh, over time, and maybe that happened slowly, maybe that happened quickly, we have automated uh, checking systems. And so there's still jobs there. There's still people working in the grocery stores, but the nature of their job has changed somewhat with the addition of that automation. When we look at retail, we know that online shopping has had an impact and and we've increased our our reliance on grocery delivery, on on buying things through Amazon. And that has an impact on retail shopping. I mean, this goes even further back when my grandma retired, then the uh, article, there was a newspaper article about her uh, retiring from the city. And the whole point of that article was Every job that she had in her career was being replaced by a computer. So automation technology is not something that's unfamiliar. And we, I think that if we look at that context, we know that we can adjust to it. Uh, Studies show that even though there will be greater technology and greater automation, that doesn't mean that there will be no jobs. It's just that the jobs are going to change the nature of the job and the skills that we need are going to change. And we need to be, Prepared for that change and be thinking about that change. Certainly, change, if we look at now, we have a big impact on work and careers. And that is the pandemic and COVID for the past 18 months has really shifted a lot of things in the work world. And Lisa, I don't know if you want to talk about the impact of COVID. Sure.
12: I mean, Michael, you did a great job of describing how, you know, the The world of work has changed over time, and technology certainly has contributed to that. And we certainly benefited from that as an agency during the last year and a half, because as many of you probably know, we had to shut our offices, shutter our offices due to the pandemic um, in March 2020. And for the last year and a half, we've been providing services. Uh, much of the time virtually to our participants. And we were able to do that because of the technology that we have and the platforms that exist. Um, we had to learn very quickly about how to use them effectively and providing all the quality services that we do. Um, and we were able to do that. And it definitely took some um you know, quick quick movement, quick thinking, um, but our staff were really able to get up to speed and to use those types of technology to continue to provide the work that we want to to the community seeking employment and maintaining employment. Um, and so we became keenly aware that how important these types of technologies are needed in this time period that we're living in. And for our participants, our job seekers to have those very skills to utilize themselves when they are job ready and looking for work. And so one thing that did occur in the last year and a half is that we at DSB did put a lot of focus on providing that information and training to our participants who are coming through our doors. Um, And, you know, our staff at the orientation training center have put quite a bit of focus on that very beautifully in their careers class, but also our itinerant staff have also provided that, including some of our contractors who've provided some training related to that, because we know it's absolutely critical right now in the job market to have those skills in this climate that we're living in as the pandemic continues to move on. Um, and I do think that there's opportunity there, but that's something that as an agency that we know moving forward, we have to focus on is an integrated part of the work that we do, is making sure people are very skilled in these areas, not only in the technology skills, but also in the soft skills around utilizing these types of programs and platforms in looking for work, because it's a little bit different than in person. Um, so you have to be able to navigate, navigate that with adaptability and flexibility, which are crucial and key right now is the job market is pretty saturated with people looking to utilize these platforms for work, oftentimes from home. Um, and so there is opportunity there to do work differently and certainly work remotely or telework um, with these platforms. But you know, we also recognize because of COVID and many people wanting to engage in the workforce in this new way, that there is sort of a saturation of people who are looking for those types of jobs. So that is something we also need to work with our staff on is identifying where are the opportunities around that and where we need to be cautious when we're encouraging people to look for work.
0: This is Michael. We know that the impact of COVID uh, has been really, uh, drastic in some industries. There's no question that the food service industry in particular uh, has been hard hit um, because uh, of the work from home of the of the people staying inside and not congregating in, in large numbers. That's the whole model of the food industry. And if we look more specifically at food industry within a DSB context, we have a number of business enterprise uh, program vendors that have been really severely impacted by COVID. And in many ways, the realization is there are things that couldn't have been planned for. Um, We know that financial uh, advisors suggest that we plan for six months or eight months of not having work. But quite honestly, for these BEP vendors, uh, their, their customer base was shut off overnight, meaning, They have operations. They have food service operations in government buildings, whether they're federal buildings, state buildings, or county buildings. And overnight, government workers were told to work from home, and their customer base disappeared instantly, overnight. And that hasn't returned. Um, It's slowly thinking about returning. Um, And so that impact has been an 18-month impact of not having revenues for business enterprise program. And that's true for a lot of um, food service operations uh, in, in the community. But to be able to res- uh, be resilient in that, the adaptability, the looking at how do we do things in a different way, really has to kick in. And that is going to be the key for um, food service operations and BEP operations to exist in a new world where I mean, for BEP, even when people come back into the government buildings, they're gonna be much fewer uh, individuals in those buildings. And so they're gonna have a much smaller customer base. And DSB is looking at um, finding ways to overhaul those BEP operations. So they are more profitable for the individual operator in the future with a smaller customer base. So they are able to expand their reach to customers um, And that's an example of a drastic example of the adaptability that I think any of us in the workplace are going to need to be prepared for because we don't know what automation is going to have, uh, what impact it's gonna have on our job. We don't know what um, the economy may do. We don't know what pandemic will come down. We don't know what uh, different demographics will impact um, and different technologies will impact our, our jobs. So that adaptability is going to be a key aspect for any of us in the workplace. And I know we're talking to some people here who are uh, uh, nearing retirement or have comfortably retired, and you're saying, thank goodness. I'm glad I'm out of this conversation. But I know that you are mentors for the new workforce, for the next generation, for people that are in jobs. And so um, to be thinking about these aspects I think are really key for your mentorship uh, conversations. And for those of us that are in our jobs, it's a scary thing to think that I need to worry about adaptability. I need to be planful for change that I don't necessarily know is gonna happen, but that is gonna be key for our successes uh, and to be, um, to be keeping employment uh, consistent that we change with that employment. Um, and then the next generation there are probably different ways of looking at ways of getting training, kind of switching off what that pathway to employment is um, in different training programs. Right. I
12: so. that's. I mean, it's an excellent example of where, you know, an industry that's been so heavily hit because of COVID, food service, um, you know, where there's opportunity there to capitalize on pivoting with technology, and I, Jim Hemond, our BEP program manager, has been really instrumental in sharing those types of resources with our vendors about here we need, you know, to move from the cafeteria cafe model, which is pretty outdated at this point, to a grab and go model, which does rely heavily on technology for, you know, state workers to come into buildings using applications on their smartphones to order and then pick things up without a lot of contact with other you know, employees, just grabbing the item they've gotten and go. And so there is such a great opportunity with the technology. It's a great example of this industry where you know you can pivot in such a way and be successful, but it does require us to be adaptable in that way. And certainly, you know, when we look at other types of, you know, industry in Washington State right now, there's lots of opportunity in the healthcare industry. I mean, it's booming in Washington State right now. You know, it's been compounded with COVID because a lot of people have left the field because of the impact, you know, on them personally. But even before then, this was a growing area. And so it's something that we at the agency are very Keen and looking at moving forward, sharing with our counselors, sharing with our participants, what kinds of opportunities can we capitalize on in this area, in this industry that is growing, because we can adapt where there are challenges in industries. And then we also need to be looking at where are the opportunities that are growing over time. And and certainly healthcare is one of those, you know, where they don't have enough projected workers eventually to provide the services to people. And so we need to be helping inform our participants of the opportunities there. And certainly also with state employment, Uh, baby boomers retiring earlier than expected, oftentimes because of COVID (laughs) again, but there's an opportunity there for many of our job seekers looking at great state jobs and how many are out there right now. And for us as an agency, where can we develop those opportunities and work-based learning experiences to get in to have that leverage of finding those opportunities in certain industries within the state. Um, We're in a really great place to do that. And I'm just gonna put a plug in here. Um, We do have a new business engagement and workforce program manager at our agency. Um, He just started this month actually. And so he's going to be leading some of these potential partnerships where we see the opportunity in these industries. And he's already just hitting the ground running, running Um, looking at apprenticeships that we're wanting to develop uh, because we know internships and apprenticeships are an excellent way for people to get those skills they needed to be competitively placed in jobs. And so that's something that we are already moving on. Um, And we want to be looking at these industries where there are opportunities and also being cautious about where there are many people looking for work. And and one of those areas where there is an opportunity but we need to be cautious is the tech industry. Um, A lot of people are seeking work in this field. And in fact, um, it's such a hot market right now. There's only 0.2 of applicants that are hired into this area because it really is a place where a lot of the new generation of workers are wanting to go. So where within this field, maybe are there areas that we uh, that are overlooked within the tech industry that we can look at and capitalize in those areas so we are, we are focusing on the opportunity for certain right now in Washington and those are some of the things that we're thinking about. Um, another one that comes to mind also is insurance claims industry which is really booming in Washington. So. Our new business engagement manager is really helping us identify these areas and and, and there are certain specific areas that are growing because of the pandemic. And so that's something that we are definitely keeping in focus.
0: And to add to Lisa, what you're saying about opportunity is opportunity often happens unexpectedly. We don't know when an opportunity for an expanded labor market is gonna happen. We just had um, a weird opportunity where vaccine mandates um, have uh, many businesses and certainly state government have required that the employees uh, have uh, show proof of vac- uh, vaccination against uh, the COVID-19 virus, and there are people that made choices to not um, to, to leave employment and to um, to not get vaccinated. But that means that there's a five to ten percent. Vacancy in many jobs in this moment. And my question is Are we prepared for that opportunity as an individual? Do we have, have we been practicing our skill sets? Have we been keenly aware of what is necessary uh, for moving up and moving into promotional opportunities? Are we taking advantages of things offered in our current job? Um, opportunities that are we saying? that's not my job and I just want to do my job. Or are we saying, wow, there's management is asking for someone to lead a project or management is asking someone to to do some new tasks. And I'm going to move on that because I don't know where it's going to lead me, but it prepares me better than, um, than other people for any potential change. So be thinking about that in your own work world if you are employed. And be looking for those opportunities and ask for those opportunities. Um, don't be silent. I think self advocacy in the world of work, the future of work, but also when we talk about remote work, which we really haven't hit upon, uh, which is part of a big part of the future of work, self advocacy is going to be keenly required. When we talk about remote work, not going into a workplace, not having your coworkers and colleagues uh, in vicinity, not having a supervisor in vicinity. You're gonna need to learn to take initiative, advocate for your needs and over communicate. Those are really key qualities for being connected and staying connected to the workplace. And for having a supervisor understand the work that you're doing and the value that you're bringing to to the job and understand that you are a good candidate for promotional or, or other opportunities, development opportunities. Um, it's, it takes it puts a little bit more of the uh, responsibility on the individual to uh, be noticed, to, to be part of the conversation. And remote work doesn't necessarily, um, it doesn't, the format doesn't naturally give you that sense of connection, that sense of that, that ability to build relationships. It can be a really challenging mechanism in which to do work and still move towards that developmental and progressive uh, those opportunities in your job right least, and i
12: and i think that you know connection with this consumer groups is a great way to build support and networking and connection around that because like Michael mentioned, you know, there's the isolation and working remotely. I mean, it definitely offers you a lot of flexibility um, and it's a benefit in a lot of ways because, you know, it takes away some of the stress with, you know, having to get out and be somewhere in a certain particular time. It, you know, it can certainly provide a lot of benefit um, in, in personal ways, but there is that you know, engagement piece that's so important to work, you know, and I do believe, especially because of COVID and the impact on, you know, changing the way that we relate to each other. Um, there's been some sort of a a loss, I think, in somewhat in those self-advocacy skills for some of our new job seekers. And I see the consumer groups really being a really needed part of that community support. Um, we know that because of COVID some of our youth exiting the secondary school system ended up taking some time off because of the complications of COVID in their lives, whether it was the fear of getting out and going to school in a post-secondary environment, or they had complications at home that was you know committing them to do um, some personal support. And so sometimes there was some gaps that were, you know, unfortunately created for some of our youth coming out of secondary school, seeking post-secondary opportunities. And, you know, that smooth transition from the secondary school resources and support to the post-secondary environment was lost a little bit. There's been a slide with some of that. And we've seen that with the graduation numbers and then also people entering into post-secondary training that there aren't, it wasn't as immediate as in years past. So people did take some time off. And in that time off with COVID, there was that isolation. So getting people back engaged into working with us as an agency, working with their counselor at DSB, Working with the stakeholders that we're connected to may take a little bit more high touch and focus during this time. And I do see WCB being a great way for some of these individuals to get connected to use that peer support because it's going to need to be a little bit more intentional. We're recognizing that right now due to those challenges that came from COVID and that gap that was created for some youth. Um, So I do see. For our younger job seekers, you know, that need to be engaged and use those skills in that way may need some more attention and focus than it has in the past. So we are recognizing that as an agency, we're definitely having to skill up our staff, but also skill up our job seekers because there was that unfortunate, you know, barrier. And we need to really be sure that our participants are able to advocate for themselves not only around technology, but also getting themselves connected to resources and that support.
0: Some of the benefits of remote work, I mean, we we maybe weren't specific about that, but huge benefits in not having to worry about transportation, not having to worry about how do I get to and from work. Geography is no longer a limitation. I can live in my community and work and find a really good job, a remote job and work that job from my home. And that job may be advertised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania but it doesn't matter because remote work I can work from from uh, Tukwila, Washington. Um, there are huge benefits to that. Uh, and uh, there is a, a lot of opportunity. Certainly um, there's a lot of competition For those remote jobs as well. Um, As we move out of the pandemic, some businesses want to maintain those remote jobs because it works well. They can downsize their office space, save money, and get the same amount of work done, the same quality of work done. Other businesses are going to be wanting to bring people in. So you need to be listening for whether or not this job, this remote job that's advertised today is going to continue to be that way or not? So that, that might be one of your questions. But the reality is for those jobs that are uh, advertised as remote work, there's a lot of competition. And, and your competition is not just everyone in Tukwila or the general area. Now it's kind of the world. It's it's at least the, the country, if not the world, um, that your competition, you're, you're fighting for that position. And that means that your skills have to be world-class, that your technology skills have to be on par to none, that your ability to uh, advocate and interview and, and go through the recruitment process skillfully and show your talents and show what value you can bring and know what position you're, you're interviewing for. That's often in interviews, I find that people are interviewing for the position they, they have, rather than the promotional opportunity that they're looking to. And knowing how to imagine yourself, even if you've never had that experience of being in that promotional uh, position or, or higher role, imagining what and knowing what, uh, what expectations or guessing or doing some really good assessment of what it would be like for you in that role and then to be speaking to that uh, in your interviews gonna be key. The other notion of working from home, I think Lisa, you, you mentioned it, you're gonna be your own tech support in reality. You don't have an IT person down the hall to say, or a colleague to pull over and say, what's happening on my screen? Um, your skills are gonna to have to be top-notch to be able to resolve a lot of those um, everyday problems as I know you know can happen with uh, adaptive software and screen readers, screen magnifiers, and you know the crazy products that we have to interact with um, uh, on a daily basis for our jobs. So that's something to be considering as well. Do my computer skills, can I, can I problem solve and, and resolve technical issues on my own? How do I get that? How do I learn to do that more on my own? How do I rely more on myself? Because that's going to be a critical need if you are doing remote work.
12: Yeah, it's a great point where, you know, it's like we have to skill up our job seekers, you know, at our agency for sure in these areas. So they are world class. But then we also need to be aware that we have to self screen and know, is that an area that I really enjoy working in? And do I have. Do I have the ability to help myself in these situations at home? I mean, is that something I like to do? Is this something I feel like I could do? And uh, because that's really going to be critical in those types of remote jobs. So I think that's something we also need to be thinking about, aside from just the convenience, you know, and the opportunity that exists Do you have those skills? And do you like that type of work, troubleshooting for yourself? Because it's not for everybody. So that's, it's sort of, we are evaluating the needs and we're looking at the opportunities in new ways when we're looking at, you know, industry, when we're looking at types of work, because so much has become remote. And so it's not just, it's not just the industry in itself, it's the the skills around it. So I know we've been talking about that. And I know we've been talking in general for a little while, so I at least wanted to see if there was any questions. leave a little opportunity if you all had any questions, we certainly want to take them. Um, so this might be a time if you have any questions, we certainly can uh, you know answer them.
10: Melissa, you should be able to unmute. Thank you, um, Belinda. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And hi, Andy. <clears throat> Good to see you. Um, So I just wanted to just make a comment and say that I just started working from home um, just here recently with my new job. I started on September 16th, and so I've not been um, doing it for very long, but I will just say that due to my medical issues and with the rainy weather that we've had the last few days, it has been the best thing since sliced bread to work (laughs) from home, seriously, because you know, if I need to, you know, I can lay down if my back hurts, or if I have a, another type of issue that I'm dealing with, or I like yesterday, I had an emergency situation. And had I not been home, I wouldn't have been able to take care of it as fast as I did. So literally, it is just it's the best thing since sliced bread. And even though, you know, you were talking about troubleshooting. Um, I do connect on Microsoft Teams with my colleagues if I ever have a problem. So it's it's almost like they're there, but at least they can um, be of assistance to me if I ever need that. So thank you very much for your presentation and um, good information.
12: Thank you. This is Lisa Melissa. Thank you for sharing that. I just had a question for you. So what what kind of work are you doing and what kind of skills did you have to have to be you know, qualified for that? Because I just think that's interesting to share, too, for the group.
10: Oh, that was so funny. I was right in the middle of my speech when you asked the question. <laughs> 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 Thank you for, for that question. So um, um, and I won't give a lot of information just because I'm still new to it, but um, I will be working once I get past the training. I am working, I will be working as a customer service intake agent too for uh, Washington Employment Security Department. So um, that's what I'll be doing. And I would really have to say your jaw skills have to be top notch, of course. Um, Although I'm still learning the programs that we're using to navigate like the VPN and like the teams and other programs, um, it's it has been a learning curve, and there are incidences when you have to problem solve yourself and figure out, okay, what can I do to resolve this? And so, um, I guess it, I hope that answers your question, Miss Lisa.
12: Oh no, thank you. That's very helpful. And I'm, all right, very yeah, good. I appreciate it. Thank That's you. Awesome. Congratulations. I hope the job goes well. And
10: oh, thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you.
0: Yeah. Michael wishes the same. Thank
10: you. Good to talk to you, Michael. I remember you. (laughs) Okay, Belinda. (laughs) All right. uh, We
1: have another raised hand. Doreen. Hi. So
13: a couple of comments. Um, I want to say that part of what I know about Melissa's job, part of what I want to sort of connect with what Kirk was saying about the importance of volunteer activities. Because I think that Melissa has been convening a prayer call. And there's several people on the prayer call who just, I think, were able to observe that Melissa has a really great presence. And it's from before the before the prayer call, she was involved with things to do with old time radio. And so she's kept at it and kept at it. And it's exciting for me to hear her be able to move into a different job because she was starting to have some occupational injury issues with the exact work she was doing at the lighthouse. Um, and sometimes you just have to embrace transitions. But the other thing I wanted to personally talk about is it's the gig economy. I mean, and I think, cause I've kind of, To the extent that I've got paid work, it's because I've been able to do grant writing or small project management and it's the gig economy. And so I'm wondering what DSB does or what, I mean, it's kind of, I've kind of find my own way, but there's whole things about figuring out what's a good contract and sort of small business or tax accounting issues that. If you're if you've been working at home for a long time, are different. I mean, now, now everybody's working at home, so they're all gonna figure it out. But is DSB doing anything to help engage people about the gig economy? It's it's it, like the gig economy is different because you're kind of interviewing more often, but it's also a case of plunge in people, see what you can do, and they'll go, okay, there's something we can pay you to do. Uh, which would be part of my story. So I just want to throw out the term gig economy and ask you to respond to that.
0: Appreciate that, Doreen. And and like you said, a lot of the qualities and characteristics that are going to make someone successful in a gig economy are the same uh, as owning a small business. And do I have the initiative? Do I have the drive? Do I have the self-advocacy? Do I have the ability to um, maneuver as I change from job to job to job, the whole uh, accommodation process and uh, understand how my adaptive technology may or may not interact with that new uh, workplace. Uh, It is a challenge and it takes the right type of personality and the right type of skills. Again, you've got to have uh, superior skills to be able to to, uh, work in a lot of different places, particularly with technology. Um, the gig economy, it's, it's uncertain how how that's going to grow. Statistically, yeah. it's maintained uh, for the past decade about 10%. It hasn't necessarily uh, hugely increased. But we do see it more in things like Uber and things like uh, Microsoft and, and IT. Um, there is a lot of small contract work uh, where you need to... Um, Uh, be prepared to end that contract and then have the initiative to find where that next contract is. It's a challenge. I don't know. Lisa, do you have other thoughts on that aspect?
12: No, I think you bring up some excellent points. And as far as um, the small business resources, I mean, that's certainly something that we'd like to, we offer that support at DSB for self-employment. it's not for everybody. Like Michael said, it's for the right individual who has a lot of high competitive skills and are able to maximize those to their own benefit to be that more freelance type of a person. Mm. Um, and so it it does it does require a lot of, I think, good conversation between the counselor and the participant to, to see if that's if that exists, if if those qualities exist. And if there's an interest there, how can we help build those? Um, mm-hmm. But certainly um, we want to be real in knowing that that takes a certain type of person to really navigate that world with the freedom and you know expertise that it takes because it's, just, it's not for everybody, but it is a great way to provide income for yourself if you do have those skills. And we certainly do support that type of work. I just want to in general say that if it is for the right individual and they do have the right qualities that it would, you know, to meet that, we certainly can support that at the agency. So we have the available resources and you know our counselors certainly can support that if it's the right fit. Does
11: uh, that address your,
0: your question, Doreen?
13: Um, yes. Um, humbly it also takes self-awareness. And there are some days when I am both a terrible boss and a terrible employee. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um and, and the, other, the other part is I totally want to echo the, the point that you are your own tech support and the technical troubleshooting of, no, you're not a stupid person. The technology's just not working. Um, and like one of the things I've done over the pandemic is kind of gone on the video conferencing world tour of all the different ways to do video conferencing. Um, so there's sometimes the, the point about just being able to learn quickly and bang around in the technology. I just want to totally underscore that. No, thank you for that. I mean, we
12: had just to share, we had a virtual retirement party for one of our employees retiring this week, and we had lots of technical difficulties. And I had that thought. I'm so glad I'm not doing this um, on my own at home <laughs> because this would be really challenging. But for the people that really enjoy it, I mean, that's an excellent fit you know, because it it does come
13: up. No, well, and that's really part of the, that's really part of the virtual game right now is that the the tech support of getting people with different levels of technology and different levels of comfort to feel comfortable in your meeting space, whatever kind of meeting space it is.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Doreen. Another thought I had that can be a challenge is what our preferences are in terms of the workplace. Do I am I comfortable with shifting who my colleagues are again and again and again? And I'm Mm -hmm. good with those, um, you know, more superficial relationships. Or is it important for me to have more deep and long term um, relationships with my colleagues and coworkers, and to be in one place,
13: or to develop a a network of people that are kind of not all in the same office but feeding each other? So yeah, Thank thank you.
7: Okay, next you have Nathan. Nathan, you can go ahead
1: with the question. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes,
7: yes. very good. We can hear
13: you. So, two, two questions, one that's kind of related to what Doreen was talking about, um, and that is, could you just, in your own words, define, for those that may not know, what is the gig economy? And then the second question that I have is kind of related to that. How, with COVID, how has networking changed, in your mind, and how can DSP assist clients with the network, the networking aspect of you know looking for work?
0: But in gig economy, we're talking about um, those short-term uh, contract jobs um, or uh, part-time jobs. Uber might be an example of that, where uh, they're contracting with uh, you know the Uber company, but they're kind of their own uh, business people, and they get to set their own uh, times that they work or not. Uh, and it, the gig economy in, in many ways can be really good uh, for people that want supplemental income. There are a lot of uh, ways to just kind of have that fit your own schedule. Um, others, you know, other uh, like IT industries are um, have small contracts, short term contracts where they're getting uh, support, IT support project basis of, of IT work is super busy and then not busy at all, super busy, not busy at all, depending on the project. And so having that ready supply of, of short-term, part-time workers um, makes sense for the industry. And that individual who is engaging in that may need to find the next opportunity once the contract is up and then the next opportunity. Lisa, would you define it in, in any different way?
12: No, I fully agree. I think there's, you know, the shadowy kind of jobs that sometimes can be, you know, those additional jobs you take and, uh, you know, to supplement income, you know, such as Uber drivers or Lyft drivers or anything related to that. But I also think a lot about the tech industry. So I thank you for mentioning both of those because, you know, I just know at Microsoft, a lot of their employees that work for them aren't really Microsoft employees. They're, you know, freelance employees doing work for Microsoft. And that seems to be a really common theme in the tech world. So, those are the two that kind of come to mind. But yes, it's the short-term freelance type of work.
13: And then how has how networking changed and how can assist clients with the networking aspect of looking for work?
0: I appreciate that question. I, I think that uh, with remote work and the remote connection, there've been a lot of opportunities to connect with people that you wouldn't necessarily in your immediate network. Um, there are all sorts of webinars, there are all sorts of discussions, there are all sorts of uh, uh, conversations that can be joined, and, uh, and, and you can be meeting people from across the country with similar interests. I think that there are increased ways of networking and finding those opportunities uh, it may be challenging, I, I can imagine. Um, Lisa, do you have thoughts about that as well?
12: No, I agree. I mean, a lot of the opportunities that used to be based, it seems that, you know, conferences um, that were in person, we became virtual over the last year and a half and much more accessible. I've just found, you know, in the work that we do in VR, the webinars that exist, uh, the conferences that we're able to attend that we used to have to travel to in person, we actually now all can participate and more of us can participate in Um, virtually. So it's been, we have more opportunity now, which is super, uh, to network and get to know our national partners in certain ways, um, our local regional partners. It's been really beneficial to us as an agency, but also to our participants because actually Julie Brannon uh, sends out every week the virtual um, events and opportunities to connect through ACB. And I send that out every week to all of our VR staff. So they can share or utilize for themselves. So that's been new in the last year and a half. So I think but, there's just so much more opportunity to connect, um, and it's exciting because you can really discover new friends and new, you know, network opportunities that maybe were more hidden, um, you know, for those in-person opportunities in the past. So,
0: and I have to say though, I, I, for our work as well, uh, for our counselors to not be in the community. Um, our, our counselors represent, they're responsible for a huge territory, and certainly they need to have kept up on those relationships uh, remotely to, to do business. But we know that relationship building is better in person, stopping and having a an natural conversation. The video conferencing and the video uh, connections often tend to be more of a monologue. I talk, and then I mute, and then you talk, and then you mute and we really stay focused on topic because we don't want to necessarily go off on those personal relational sorts of uh, conversations. And I think there's a lot of that missing and there's a lot of that that needs to somehow be regained once we get back into the communities for the benefit when we're talking about department services for the blind, building those relationships in the communities that people are living and finding out about those opportunities. Some of that happens better in person. There's no question. So you've got expanded opportunity and then it, there are things that are missing and we need to figure out, I think we're still figuring that out. Still so trying to figure that out, how we replicate that more relational sort of networking building. Does that address your questions, Nathan?
11: Yeah, thank you so much. We have about seven or eight minutes left.
1: Time for a couple more questions. All right. Next, we have Sarah.
14: Yes, I have. I I actually have kind of an intense question. Um, I trained as a certified peer counselor for the mental health field in 2015. I got my certificate from TACID um, through um, the Pierce County program. Um, I've been doing some volunteer work. I want to upgrade my skills, but um, I want to upgrade my training. But the problem is the online programs aren't extremely accessible. And you know, I'd like to continue. You know, I've been volunteering. I'd like to continue to do this and get paid for it. Um, you know, maybe work for an organization or you know something or you know do it from home because, um, <laughs> you know, with my immune system being so bad and I had a bad reaction to the vaccine. So it's not like I can go out in the workplace and just say, hey, y'all hire me. But um, is there possibilities, have you guys worked with uh, certified peer counselors uh, in the mental health field in Washington state? Um,
12: this is Lisa. I actually have heard of the, the counselor that what you are doing through tacit. And I, I do believe that, um, so I know, and I don't know, Sarah, if you've worked with us in the past, but for some reason I you have. sound familiar to me.
14: <laughs> so yes. I have, like, and I screwed up, but, um, oh, okay. you know, well, it's been, nice to see you again. I've been doing, I've been doing lots of volunteer work, you know, trying yeah. to get my act together. Um, And it's not all been positive. I've had some, you know, I've had some problems, not with me, but with uh, a client or two, but, you know, that I can't go into, but it's, you know, it's a difficult job. It's not easy. I'm not, sure. I'm not jumping into an easy job. Right,
12: right. Well, I mean, I certainly am open to helping you connect with us in ways that, you know, we can talk about that might be helpful, you know, as far as potential career paths for you, if that's something that you are interested in doing and gaining some, yeah. you know, earned yeah. income. So we certainly can connect you to the right people. I, I, we know that that's something that could be a good bridge from volunteer experience to paid experience. So yes, I mean, we definitely do support individuals who are working in the mental health counseling field. And I'd be curious to know what kinds of opportunities exist in that realm. Um, I'm sure there are some. So if you wanted to reach out to me, or if
14: I, I can reach out to you, I certainly connect you to the right people. I, I don't, don't mind. You can call me anytime and I'll call you anytime. <laughs> but I can tell you from personal experience, I have a rare disease and talking to a peer counselor who also has a rare disease is really, it's, it's supportive. And, um, and in turn, I've been helping somebody else with a rare disease, but I think um, my ability to help them is, you know, but um, it's been, it's been beneficial. And I mean, I'm probably not going to, I'm probably, I probably don't have the strength to work full-time, but even a part-time job, I mean, I'd like to make a little bit of money.
12: <laughs> you
14: bet. Yeah. I'm not expecting definitely, you
12: definitely can, we can talk more for sure about that.
14: Great. That, that's how, I'm, I'm excited because, um, I'm pushing hard. Ooh, I got a phone call. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much.
11: Well, Michael and Lisa, I want to thank you for an incredible presentation
0: today. Um, But do we have time to have kind of a little wrap up? Yes. Awesome. No, I appreciate this and I really love all the conversation that we've had and I'm grateful for that. Um, I think the future of work, change is scary and and we've all gone through change and it, it feels like the pace of change has been change upon change upon change upon change upon change. And I think that we're all experiencing that in many ways, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in helping our, our kids get educated uh, from home into a full-time job or, you know, uh, on the job in uh, thinking about how my job is going to change and what do I need to prepare for? Um, I think that, adaptability and being open to training opportunities is key. We didn't really talk about the fact that, and I know Kirk Adams had, had really promoted apprenticeships and hands-on. I know, Lisa, you also talked about that. But that is one of the focuses for DSB to be able to um, really expand our connection, our relationship, and our networking with apprenticeship programs. Because we know, as Lisa, you had said, that hands-on experience is key for an employer to know and to trust that you know someone with a visual visual disability can do anything that they've got the aptitude for and sometimes unfortunately we have to show that um, for people to believe that but um, that's an excellent way in our past history and hopefully in our future history to be able to get people connected to jobs networking i'm hoping to talk to kirk adams about AFB and, and their, uh, their push for apprenticeships because that is really somewhere that we want to expand upon. And our connection with business, you may hear terms called dual customer, um, um, uh, whatever, dual customers, where the law has changed that DSB and vocational rehabilitation, the customer has always been the individual with a disability that wants to get a job or keep a job or promote in, in work. But we also have another focus of understanding business and what their needs are and promoting those needs and helping them through uh, their needs related to individuals with disabilities and and how to create a disability friendly uh, um, uh, environment, but also how to fill their jobs. What are the skills that are needed from that business and what is the training needed to make sure that we connect our participants up with those opportunities. So those are two things in how the future is impacting DSB itself. And I just wanted to relay that. Lisa, did you have any last thoughts?
12: No, just, I thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciated all the questions. I hope we got to everybody and we look forward to moving in this direction post-COVID, whenever that actually is. Maybe it's just existing with COVID. (laughs) Uh, But we definitely are keen, as I mentioned before, on all the opportunities and how to steer our participants looking for the various opportunities that exist in the right direction. So thank you.
0: Thank you all. Have a great uh, uh, convention and really appreciate you all. Take care. Thank you very
11: much to both of you. Um, all, right.
13: all right this drawing is for a 25 dollar amazon gift card from yakima valley council of the blind i just gotta shake it up good here all right and it's for christy yusuf from seattle washington
7: Yay! Thank you. Our next drawing is a twenty-five-dollar Dickies gift card, donated by Snohomish County Council of the Blind.
6: Let's pick them up here. And the winner is Randy Tedrow from Des Moines, Washington. Yay! Hey, Randy! Hey, Randy! Rinder Sella
11: himself.
7: <laughs> Let me have some more drink. <laughs>
11: Thank you very much. And now I'd like to introduce our medical track panel and to moderate that panel today is Judy Brown. Are you there, Judy?
2: Yes, I am. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I can't tell from my end, Are the other two panelists also on board.
15: Hi, Judy, this is Jamie Klein. I'll be presenting for Dexcom.
2: Thank you. And then I was also looking for our person from Dispatch Health. Yes, ma'am, I'm here. All right, good. So let me just uh, start out real quickly. Uh, as uh, everybody just heard, my name is Judy Brown. For those who do not know, uh, I am also a full time uh, working legally blind nurse. I currently do discharge planning. Um, but I'm moderating this basically because my healthcare background. Um, I personally have a little bit to present on my end uh, because I'm also co-chair of the advocacy committee. And as part of that role and as my healthcare uh, provider role, I actually started a committee last year that we're still working through these this topic to make discharge instructions and any written instructions that we give to patients more accessible, not only uh, for people who are legally blind, but also language accessible as well. I was hoping to have a little bit more to present on that today, but because of a few delays, I hate to use the word COVID, but there it goes. Um, I don't have as much as I wanted to. So all I can say at this point is that the hope for UW Medicine as we progress with this uh, topic is that we will be doing training for the staff. So the staff will understand better how to interact with people who have visual impairments or maybe language impairments. Uh, or reading impairments. And also to make some of the software that we utilize right now for patient instructions to make that more accessible and even be able to upload audio files for people who that will work for them better to obtain information rather than just being having to use like maybe a screen reader. So that's kind of where we are with that project. Again, I wish I'd had more to talk about, but I do not. So at this point in time, um, we do have our two guests. And our first guest uh, is going to be from Dispatch Help. Uh, Each panelist is gonna have about 15 minutes, so that'll give us enough time for Q and A. So why don't we start with Dispatch Help, thank you.
3: Hi, good morning everyone, and uh, welcome to Dispatch Help. My name is Deanne Johnson, and I am the business development representative for the company, and brought to you today an introduction to our services. Dispatch Health is an on-demand mobile urgent care providing ER ER-level healthcare in the comfort of your home. So if you are sick or injured, you call Dispatch Health. We're going to ask you some questions, make sure it's not a life-threatening situation and I deploy a board certified medical team to your home. We send a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant as well as an ER trained med tech uh, to assess, diagnose and treat in the comfort of your home. Um, This avoids non-emergency emergency care visits It reduces readmittance to the hospital. It avoids long waits in the waiting room at the urgent care. And you don't have to worry about your little dog if you have one, because you'll be waiting for our team to arrive um, in your favorite chair or wherever you like to be comfortable in your home. We actually carry a lab so we can draw blood and have the results in minutes. We carry a gastrointestinal and urinary kit. We have an EKG machine on board. We can treat wounds and lacerations, including wound culture in case it appears to be infections. Uh, We can do incision and drainage of existing wounds and all wound care. We carry an IV kit so we can push IV fluids IV antibiotics. We have IV catheters. Um, We carry a small pharmacy, um, includes diuretics, steroids, the antibiotics I mentioned. Uh, We also have a respiratory kit with the nebulizer machine. We can do nasal packing and cauterization. Um, We carry an ortho kit in case you trip and hurt your knee, if you were to go to the emergency room, you're going to be there for quite a long time if the ambulance can even get to you within the hour and all they're going to do is immobilize that knee and send you to an ortho doc. Um, we can actually come to your home and that knee and send you to your ortho doctor. Um, we do test and treat for COVID, strep, the flu, um, once our visit is complete, we do clinical notes and forward them to your primary care doctor. So your primary care doctor is in the loop. They know exactly what we've done, uh, what we've prescribed, if any, how we treated you. Um, and then we print off discharge paperwork uh, for you. Um, and anyone else that needs a copy of those discharge paperwork um, with follow-up instructions. Um, Dispatch Health started in Denver in 2013 where the ER doctors were tasked with reducing readmittance by 40%. And so what the doctors did is they went on just under 500 911 calls. EMS would assess the patient and they would say, Millie, you don't really need to go to the ER. We have this team here that can treat you in the comfort of your home. And of that just under 500 patients, Dispatch Health was able to treat 94% of those patients. And that is where our vision came from. It is keeping the patient home, keeping the patient safe, having a better patient outcome, and reducing those readmittance. One of the biggest questions I get um, is how much does this cost? And this is really an exciting part in that we charge as an urgent care visit. So no matter what we do or how long we're there, it is simply an urgent care visit so you would owe whatever your urgent care copay is. We do a complete exam of the patient. It's not just what the symptoms are. We're not there just to stitch up a cut. We do everything that you would receive in an urgent care setting and more. We also do an environmental check. We look for tripping hazards. We look for food insecurities. We look for mold and mildew. We look for that occasional three months worth of cat litter that doesn't always get taken care of. We include that in our clinical notes um, so we can make the primary care provider aware if the patient needs additional care, home health, um, or any other specialist that needs to be brought in. Um, Dispatch Health has been leading the nation. Um, I launched the Olympia market two and a half years ago, and I was the 11th market in the country. Uh, Then we just opened our 41st market nationwide. Um, So it is a very needed healthcare provider situation. The patient outcome is wonderful. The patient experience is better. Um, Dispatch Health is here for you. And there is nothing to sign up for. You simply call Dispatch Health. We're gonna go through that risk stratification, ask you those questions, make sure it's not life-threatening. And if you're in our service area, the team is there normally within two hours. Um, but certainly the same day, depending on the level of acuity with the patient before you. And we will assess, diagnose, and treat. You can access us on our website at dispatchhealth.com to request care. You can call us at 833-352-1471 for an immediate Ambassador. Um, You can also access on our app on your phone to request care. We're open 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day, including holidays. We have multiple teams across the state. I currently manage from the beautiful town of Tumwater, Washington, all the way up through um, Snohomish County. We are not currently in central Washington, but we are in Spokane and Spokane Valley. As we reach our capacity, we order another car, we hire another team, and we expand our zip codes. Um, I have seven teams in Pierce County. I have three teams in South King County. I have three teams in Snohomish County and just launched and doubled our capacity in Thurston County. Spokane has four Rovers, and Rovers is just the name of our car. They're actually Nissan Rogues, so I call them my Rogue Rovers. Um, it's a wonderful experience. It's a beautiful service. Um, we are endorsed by the local fire departments. Um, Medic One are providers in multi-care systems across the state endorse us, Um, the Everett Clinic up north endorses us. We are trying to reduce non-emergency, emergency emergency care visits and readmittance on those who need help. A few examples of when you would call dispatch help is uh, let's talk about Millie. I always make up Millie and I apologize if there's a Millie on the line, Um, but Millie Has a tendency to get urinary tract infections. She doesn't like to drink water because then she has to go potty. And whatever the case may be, she is a frequent patient in the emergency room uh, because she doesn't have transportation. Um, So she calls 911, and EMS comes and gets her and takes her to the urgent care, or excuse me, the emergency room. And she has to wait for six or eight hours to be seen because it's not life threatening and the emergency rooms are full and understaffed. So Millie calls dispatch health. We come out, we do a test. It's positive for a UTI. Uh, The team makes the appropriate call for treatment. Oftentimes she's dehydrated. So we push IV fluids, IV antibiotics. If she needs additional medications, we call it into a local in-network pharmacy to be delivered same day, next day, and Millie's on her way to becoming healthy again. She avoided the emergency room, the hustle, the bustle, the ride on the gurney, lights and sirens, and she's feeling better. The loss ratio for insurance companies, um, that would have been a $3,800 visit to the emergency room. Um, when we're simply an urgent care visit and Millie is on her way to being healthy for simply an urgent care copay. And she never had to get out of her slippers. Uh, another example when people use dispatch health is you're working from home, you have three sick kids, we can dispatch our team to your home, line them up and treat them and you never had to walk away from your computer. You didn't have to find transportation for the kids. EMS was not called. We've looped in your pediatrician. They know how we treated them, what medications were prescribed, and the kids are happy and healthy and didn't have to give out of their pajamas. Um, Another reason people call dispatch health um, is really the cost savings. Um, so let me tell you about a gentleman. He is a hardworking man. He tripped. He sprained his ankle. He has no way to get to the hospital or his doctor. So he calls 911. He's got an $800 bill just for the ambulance ride. He has no insurance. He is in the emergency room for hours. They do x-rays. They treat him. They send him to his orthopedic doctor, that's $3,800 more. He needs an ambulance ride home. He can't get his prescription for pain meds. Um, All of that is a $6,000 event. That uninsured person is responsible for those bills. If that uninsured gentleman who twisted his ankle, calls dispatch help, we can do all of those things for him in the comfort of his home and our self-pay flat rate, no matter what we do or how long we're there is $275, which is such a reasonable cost. Again, we are an affordable in-home medical care provider and we dispatch within two hours, we're at your front door, we loop in your primary care doctor, and you are ready to become healthy again. I am open to questions, availability. Judy, where should we go from here?
2: Well, actually, I have a quick question myself. Um, Yes, ma'am. Doing a lot of discharge planning at the hospital that I work at, one of the things that I run up against is sometimes people don't have a PCP, primary Mm -hmm. care physician. Um, What is your capability of of trying to find those type of support for further referrals? Great question, Judy.
3: We do partner with um, several primary care providers that treat patients on a regular basis as their primary um, care physician in the comforts of their home. So we do have the ability to connect them with someone that can become their PCP. And then we just stay in our urgent care lane.
2: Okay, so how also, I know one of the questions that comes up sometimes is um, Medicaid individuals. um, Mm -hmm. Are are you accepting that insurance? Uh,
3: Yes, we do take Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, The only Medicaid that doesn't play well with others um, for us is Melina.
8: Mm. That's a (laughs) shocker.
3: <laughs> uh, and we also take <laughs> Tricare for Life. Okay. <laughs> and we and we take and we take Kaiser's age 65 and older.
2: Excellent. So, Excellent. And anyone that's Medicare eligible. So if somebody, um, I I know this was answered at another presentation, but I think this is still a good question. Uh, for instance, the UTI that uh, you gave as an example. Um, if somebody needed just follow-up blood work and that's all the PCP wanted, would that be something that you would then go you, back and
7: do? You are, or would you you be- are something else. You are something <laughs> else.
2: I'm sorry.
3: No, it's okay. Um, we actually need to assess the patient. Yeah. And, and diagnose and treat. Um, so for that follow-up test, um, we would not be able to do that um, something we do do um, that I forgot to mention is when we cultured Millie and it came up positive for the UTI, um, we push the fluids and the antibiotics. We're, we're going to take that culture back to the lab and, and examine it further. And if there's a more appropriate antibiotic to treat Millie, we go back out and see her and re-prescribe. Okay, great.
2: What I'm going to do, if you don't mind, if I can hold you just in the background and uh, let our next presenter do her thing, then we can open up for more Q&A from the general group. Wonderful. Thank you you so much. Thank you. So, um, Kirsten, are you available from Dexcom now?
15: Hi, Judy. It's Jamie Klein. Kirsten had a family emergency. It's okay. I'm just filling in for her. Um, I wanted to thank you all for having Dexcom here today to give you a little overview about what is Dexcom G6 real-time continuous glucose monitor. Um, We'll talk a little bit about how it improves diabetes care, how it decreases the risk for the progression of retina, and then who is a candidate for CGM. Um, I am a nurse and a certified diabetes care and education specialist. I also have lived with type 1 diabetes for 33 years. So I have a huge passion for helping others learn to use the tools that I think have worked best for me within my time of living with diabetes. So I thought we'd start out by just talking a little bit about why does CGM or continuous glucose monitoring Really enhance what's happening in the current system of blood glucose monitoring. Um, Back in 1988, when I was diagnosed, it was a huge needle that felt awful to poke your finger with. And it took five minutes to get a glucose reading. And now we have continuous glucose monitoring that, with DEXCOM, it provides 288 readings per day. So every five minutes, there's an update to the reading that you have on um, the receiver that you're using to get that glucose. And, you know, we talk a lot about A1C, that two to three month average, and that's great. And it's been the gold standard and it was all we had for a very long time to kind of check in on diabetes and how is that management going. But what we're learning now that we have CGM is that there's a lot that we can't see with um, just an A1C and blood glucose monitoring. So we're missing a lot of information by just getting that two to three month average. We can't see the variability that's happening from day to day, and it can really help people understand where their glucose is going high and low. It can help the providers make changes to their diabetes management and treatment plan in order to specifically reduce the amount of hypoglycemia or low glucose and reduce the amount of high glucose. So for most people living with type one and type two diabetes, the the target range is 70 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. So it could be personalized for different people, but that's that's the main goal for most people. And we have a measure when it comes to continuous glucose monitoring called time and range. And that gives a percentage of the amount of hours in a day that somebody is in that 70 to 180 range. And so this is a way that you're able to utilize your continuous glucose monitor to really get the benefit of learning about how different activities, how different foods that you may eat, how stress and many things that happen within your life can are affecting you on a day to day basis. And you can take a look and make some changes based on. That. And the beauty of Dexcom G6 is there's three components. So there is the piece that you wear on your body. There's a little small um, sensor that goes under into the skin, and the needle comes out. It's just the, about the size of two hairs that's left in your in your skin, and it measures what's called the interstitial fluid. So that's the fluid that's around all of your cells, and there's a transmitter on top, it's a little oval piece that you would clip in to the sensor and the sensor lasts for 10 days. And the transmitter on top you would reuse and that's lasts for 90 days. And then you connect that to a device to receive the data. And we have something called a receiver that can be utilized or people can utilize their um, smartphone that has is compatible with our app. So in order to... Um, to find that out, we have there's a whole list on our website that that says that. But if you have one of the the newer phones, um, it doesn't have to be the newest. But um, there's definitely a lot of phones available that are compatible, both Apple as well as the Android type devices. Um, and with with the Apple device, Siri is voice enabled, so you can say to you can say, "Hey Siri, what's my glucose." And Siri would say something like currently mine is 133 and it's steady, meaning that my it's not changing. But it, there's times that it might say that um, I am 133 with a rapid rise or 133 and dropping quickly. And so that helps me know what I need to do based on the numbers that are happening within my body. And that's one of the beautiful things about continuous glucose monitoring is that you can get with Dexcom alerts called urgent low soon alert. So that's an alert that you're able to get an alarm. And if your glucose is predicted to be less than 55 within the next 20 minutes, then you'll get this alert. And it's um, a distinct sound that, that you would be able to hear. And so then you can take action. You can eat some glucose glucose tabs or whatever it is. Right now, mine's Smarties or Skittles from the Halloween candy bags um, that are portioned to the perfect amounts. So that can really help people not have that really low low and rebound to possibly a a higher number because of overtreating because you just feel terrible when your glucose goes that low. So those are the main um, things about the Dexcom. G6 and how what it is and um, if I miss something and you have more questions about it I'm happy to answer that at the end. But how does it improve diabetes care? I think one of the huge factors and I something that I love about it is we have something called share and follow. So I can share my data with up to ten followers, which means that. My husband, for example, has the follow app on his phone. And when I was out of town last week, he was able to look and see what my glucose is. And I get to um, enable if I want him to get all the alerts that I get, or I only have it. So if I have a low glucose that he's alerted to that. So if I'm in a hotel by myself, he's able to help me out and say, hey, are you okay? Do you need anything from me? But it's a great way that people can actually have other people follow them that live alone that need some extra care, that just want someone, you know, when I first lived on my own, I wanted someone else to see what was going on with with me. Um, And so I find that to be very comforting in a way that um, it can actually improve the glucose for people. Um, And there's studies that show that if people have at least one follower, there's more time spent in range for those people. So I think that it can be a great tool, um, not only for the person living with diabetes, but also those that love and care for those people living with diabetes because they're able to help out and see what's going on. And it helps minimize the, the phone calls about how are you doing? Is everything okay? Um, so how does this relate to the decrease in the risk for the progression of retinopathy? And there's studies that show and talk about the time and range that I said before. So that time and range that's between 70 to 180, the goal is above 70%. So that's about 17 hours per day of being in that range. And so if you pair that with variability, so how up and down someone is going, um, then that can help with the progression of complications related to diabetes, such as retinopathy and as well as prevent or slow down the progression of that based on the more time and range, as well as the less variability that you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And, um, when it comes to having time and range, you really want to try to get less than 4% or less than one hour per day, less than that 70 range, because that's going to give you the best, um, to keep, to stay safe. And we know that's something that needs to be addressed immediately. And the variability is something that is newer and there's more research coming out about it and more that people are talking about, but it's really that up and down. So if you think I'm from Ohio, so I live near Cleveland and Cedar Point and there's giant roller coasters there, but then there's also the kiddie coasters. So when you're at Cedar Point, if you like roller coasters, Go on all the big ones. When it comes to diabetes and looking at the tracing from your continuous glucose monitor, having it more like a kitty, a kitty coaster with those small hills is the best for your body and being able to have hopefully less hypoglycemia if there's less variability or less ups and downs going on. And the studies show that even increasing the time and range by so going from 60% to 70% can reduce the complications and the prevalence of things um, progressing when it comes to diabetes complications. So then the last piece that I was asked to talk about is who is a candidate for real-time CGM, which would be the Dexcom G6 system. And there's lots of reasons that people can benefit from it. And there's a few different ways that you can get it. But A person who has type 1 diabetes and is on multiple doses of insulin per day, almost every insurance company covers that. I'm not sure of any that don't um, that I know off the top of my head, but again, there's lots of changes that happen all the time. Type 2 diabetes is a little different. Someone that's on multiple daily injections or taking insulin in an inhaled form generally have coverage for it. It's the people that may only take one dose of insulin or not taking any insulin at all, but there's some research coming out and some more things going on to help um, get coverage for that group. Because we know from all the studies that it really improves, improves glucose for people when they are able to see what's happening in real time and make decisions. But there are professional Um, versions of the Dexcom G6, as well as samples that can be used within offices. If a, if a provider wants to see what's happening and maybe think about a medication adjustment. So people who are struggling to meet their, their glucose targets. So the A1C greater than seven people who are having a hard time with finger sticks, someone on insulin that they need to see what's going on. A person who has fear of of low blood sugar is a really real thing. And being able to get an alert or an alarm that you're going to be low soon, or that you are low is um, a reason to have continuous glucose monitoring. Um, people that maybe miss their medications or their mealtime insulin, that really could be a way that this um, product can help, help people. There is coverage um, through Medicaid and Medicare, and it varies vastly from state to t- state with Medicare. And medic, uh, Medicaid, and then Medicare has just—it used to be you had to have a 30-day log of your blood sugars at least four times a day. You had to be taking um, four injections of insulin a day, and so they no longer require the eight, the four checks per day for 30 days, and they've included inhaled insulin and. In, up to three doses of insulin per day as part of the criteria, but again, there's a there's studies coming out that physicians can write prior authorization to try to get coverage for people who don't fall in that category. So, I hope I know that was probably a lot of information, and I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone might have.
2: I just have one quick one before we open to the general public. Sure. <laughs> um, when I was talking to your colleague, um, she mentioned that. The Dexcom also has the ability to uh, communicate with certain insulin pumps. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you
15: expand on that? Yeah, sure. Um, So we are partnered with Tandem and they have the T-Slim Control IQ insulin pump. And there's an algorithm with that pump that, that when you're wearing Dexcom G6 and you have the Control IQ turned on, that they actually work together. So. If you are predicted to go low, it may cut back your basal rate, which is that little amount of insulin you get all the time in a pump every few minutes. Or, and then if you um, are going really low, it completely turns that off. And as soon as your glucose starts going up again, it will turn it back on. And the newest part with the control IQ is that it does dose insulin in small amounts if you are going above the target zone as well. So it's, I've, I love it. It's amazing. There's times that I look down and I'm like, Oh, I might be having a low blood sugar and it's already turned off my insulin for the last 30 minutes. And I didn't have to do anything. And I actually can sometimes end up not needing to eat anything to fix it. Cause it's already done that on its own. And then my glucose overnight is really a flat line most nights, unless there's something wonky going on. Um, and then Omnipod is the patch pump that we are also partnered with and they have, um, they at the FDA, there is um, they've submitted for approval for something similar with their algorithm and using Dexcom with that. But you're able to that'll be coming out possibly in the next months. We don't have any exact data on that yet, but it's been filed there for a while. And then we have a few apps that are available and different things like that. So there's a lot of different ways that Dexcom is being used to to help people kind of relieve the burden of at least some of the burden of diabetes. Thank you.
2: All right, I'd like to open Judy, up for uh, general questions.
11: Yuri, it is noon, so we have to close up really in a short time. Move to the next. I'm, panel. I'm sorry. It's 12 o'clock, and we've got to think about cutting it. Shortly. Oh, okay. I
2: I I was told we had till 12:15. I didn't realize the time frame had changed. So, um, do we have uh, time for any questions at all?
11: Probably two questions.
2: Why don't we go? Okay. All right, so your first
16: person is Danette. Danette, you can go ahead with your question. Thank you, Belinda. Thank you. My question would be, thank you for coming to, in place of Christy. and I'd like to know, are they making the receiver more accessible for those that may not have an iPhone? And also, thank you for explaining that the T-Slim, I mean, is, are they making that accessible for a blind person? The way you were talking, it sounded like they were.
15: So um, as far as come, I do know there's a whole team and we have a whole employee resource group that is really focused on how can we make our product more accessible for people that are, um, vision impaired. And so I do know that's in the works. I don't think it's to a place where I can say like, it's everybody can use it in a a super easy way, but we are aware that it's something that we need to work on and it is being worked on. So I would say stay tuned when it comes to that. And as far as the T slim, um, you know, it does a lot of it on its own. You still do need to input carbohydrates when you eat and confirm that you want to take insulin for, um, a high, Glucose, if it recommends it, so there is still that bolus process, okay. but in between um, there isn't. So it, I don't know exactly everything that may be available to help out with with that. Okay. Um, I know it can be tricky.
16: On that other, on that same note, I also wear an in have an in pin, okay, which it and that will like if I put in the carbs, that will mm-hmm. tell me how many units that I need. Will that help with the t slim
15: yes so the well the pin won't but you can set you would have settings in your um t slim that would be your carb ratio and whatever you need to correct a high glucose and it would recommend a dose for you so you could get like 3.27 right. units like that but i would still have to enter in that 3.7 units into the tin slim the pin the the t slim i mean yeah you would have to right? There is entering of the carbs and then confirming that you agree with the doses that it recommends. So you don't have to type in 3.2. You just have to confirm um, that, yes, that looks good and I want to take that amount of insulin. And there's not an app
16: yet that'll do that, right?
15: Not yet. There's a lot on the horizon and a lot depends on what's going to get through FDA. So I wish I had all the
16: things yeah. that could
15: help and make life easier for you. And hopefully that Keyword will happen.
16: Yet. Mm-hmm. Keyword, get. Yeah. Thank yes.
1: you.
6: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes,
8: our next person, Larry, you can go ahead with your question. Thank you, Belinda. So the question I have for you is this, is that for nearly a year and a half now, I have been getting a hold of your tech support folks and saying to them that the weekly Dexcom report that I get emailed to me, it tells me if I've had a minus or a plus and it says minus one or minus this, but it used to tell you that you either were at 90% or 88%, et cetera. And I'd like to know if there's a place where I could really contact something to maybe cause that small uh, correction to occur. Now, when my wife looks at the graph, she can see it, but the full graph is not being converted to text for me using voiceover. And secondarily, um, will you guys hopefully be announcing very soon, the latest version or 7.0, or is there an announcement on the horizon or is that still secret? And thank you you for making a mostly accessible product.
15: You're welcome. And we actually had um, a person named Liz Hilton that is a, um, she's lived with type one diabetes for over 50 years and she has had blindness due to retinopathy. And she has given us most just within the last couple of weeks, her insights about things because she talked to our company. And so we do have some of her insights to help make things better as well. But I do want to find, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find who you need to contact at this point, but you're welcome to email me and I will forward it to whoever I can figure out. Um, so my my email is jamie, J-A-M-I dot Klein, K L E. I N at Dexcom.com.
8: Thank you very much. I'm going to mute me, Melinda. Melinda. All
2: right. Do we have any dispatch health questions? Do we, do we know or
14: anybody else? in the Yes. Go ahead. I have a dispatch health question. I actually have a comment and a question. And my question, my comment is I'm not Millie, but you guys have saved my life a couple of times. Um, I've done, I had you guys do tests, and then my kidney started hurting, and I did have to go to the ER mm-hmm. because my doctor told me to. And um, having the test results right there saved a lot of time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I was rushed to um, treatment because the infection was so bad. And mm-hmm. I want to thank you guys for that. And my question for you I have a question for you, and I have a question for the uh, accessible discharge papers because um unfortunately I've spent a couple of days in the ER sometimes it does I don't like it but uh so my question for dispatch health is are you getting more people in Pierce County because we need you and um the question for the the accessible discharge papers is when is that when is that likely to happen because um Uh, I'm I'm glad that other people can read my, you know, I'm glad that people that help me out can read my discharge papers, but it would be really nice to read them myself too. Mm Because like, I don't know how to spell words like Klebsiella. (laughs) It's a big word. (laughs) It's a big word. So Deanne, do you want to answer
3: your question? Uh, Absolutely. And Sarah, thank you for trusting Dispatch Health with your with your save my um, life, with your health. Um, my absolutely. Life. Um, we are expanding. I just uh pushed the zip codes all the way out to Enumclaw and south to Eatonville, and it looks like we the next step is we're going west. Um, so we'll go beyond Gig Harbor. I did add a seventh car recently, uh, looking at. 10 by the end of the year in in the Pierce County market alone. Um, So thank you. Thank you very much for trusting us. Um, We are launching a patient portal, the patient portable, the patient portal, you will be able to um, hear those discharge paperwork information and follow-up notes. Um, So that is coming, Um, it's currently online um but we will be making it accept accessible to you um so I still you still want to know how to spell ziela yeah me too <laughs> <laughs> and thank you um also a note for jamie we are in cleveland we just launched cleveland um, so if you need us, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to that. I advocate. love that.
15: <laughs> Thank you. I'll let people know. Cause I think that's so key for people that are, you know, especially unable to get somewhere and want help that day, but don't need to go to the emergency room. Yes. I think that's an amazing service.
3: And just uh, the follow-up um, when my team is on scene and I'll give you an example. Um, my mother, my mom lives with me and um, she wasn't feeling well and dispatch came out and they uh, took the painting off the wall and hung the IV fluids and, and did some testing and, and uh, UTI came up positive, but some, there was some irregular activity going on. And so they did an EKG and um, had to escalate her on scene. Um, so they called 911 and EMS came uh, Dispatch Health stayed on the scene and my lead uh, spoke to the lead EMS, updated on um, what we had done, current vitals, um, history, medications. Um, and as 911 took her to the emergency room, um, after we escalated on scene, we also sent those notes to the ER doc on at the hospital. And so when mom arrived at the hospital, they already knew her vitals, what we had done, and it was a soft handoff. Um, And she went right back in and didn't have to wait in the waiting room because they had all that information in advance. So sometimes when we arrive on scene, there's more going on than what the patient was dispatched for. And we will escalate on scene, but know that you will never be left alone. We stay with you. It's a soft handoff to 911. The ER is ready for you. They have all your information when you arrive there and hopefully shorten up your stay. Um, Sarah, thank you for your questions. I I appreciate that. And please stay out of the emergency room.
2: So real quickly, uh, Sarah, as far as my uh, portion, I work for UW Medicine. And so my project is currently within the UW Medicine System. We are thinking uh, that we're going to be able to fully launch the accessible, more accessible information by about the middle of next year because of changes in what's called Epic, which is our mm-hmm. charting system. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's been in healthcare for even like a week knows about Epic. We use um, Epic. There you go. So it it's going it's coming, but it, not till 2022. So, ladies, it looks like it's about 11 after the hour. Uh, Deanne, do you want to repeat your contact information and Jamie, you want to repeat yours? And I think that'll be about it.
3: Yes. Thank you, Judy. I appreciate um, the opportunity to speak with everyone today. Uh, My name is Deanne. You can reach me through email. My email address is deann.johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N, at dispatchhealth.com. To request care, you can call 833-352-1471, and that takes you directly to an ambassador to dispatch the team.
15: Thank you. Jamie? Yeah, thank you again for having us as well. Again, my name is Jamie Klein, J-A-M-I dot K-L-E-I-N at Dexcom. DEXCOM.com. And you can get a lot of information um, on our website as well, which is dexcom.com. So thank you all. I appreciate being invited.
2: Thank you, everybody. And I'm going to hand it back off to the team. Thank you very much.
15: Thank you, Judy.
11: The, the medical panel with the three J's. So, great presentation.
7: Our next gift card drawing is... um, (laughs) I'm going to say a mystery gift card because it's donated by Pierce County Association, uh, Association of the Blind and I don't have it in front of me. So, who knows what it could be? Sally, pick somebody to win this mystery gift card. And the winner is... Anna Zbarts. From... Seattle. Seattle, Washington. I think that's how you pronounce your name. And if I murdered it, please forgive me. Congratulations. <laughs>
11: okay. So a gift card in a mail will make up for a lot of errors. <laughs>